And welcome to the other side of midnight. Uh, Richard's still in kind of bad shape tonight. So I'm your host again. My name's Keith Morgan, Discover the Morgan Curve on Mars. And our guest tonight is James Goodall. And I know we've postponed this thing, I don't know how many times, but James and I are in good shape and he's doing better because they were both out there in the wildfires, Richard and him, uh, and with the smoke. And that's why we had to postpone the last one because both of them were hoarse. So he's doing good. He's got a lot to tell us. And um, um, I'm looking forward to this. And you guys are going to hear some stuff that you probably never heard before, especially from Jim. Uh, so, uh, Jim, I'm going to bring you on, and I want you to introduce yourself, and, because I'm not going to read your bio, because as long as all get out of heck. Okay. So, all right, Jim. Uh, you're on. So, tell us your background, Jim. Gee, thank you, and uh, I want to you know, thank the audience for having patience. You know, if it, it seems like there was there was a conspiracy to keep uh, Richard and I from you know, from uh, being on the air, but today's the day or tonight's the night. My background, I am a retired Air Force Master Sergeant, but my background started when I was, well, about five years old. We were living in San Jose, and we were living not that far from San Jose Municipal Airport, and my, my dad came into the bed, bedroom, and I had gone to bed, but it was still light out. He said, I don't know what's coming, but you got to see it. So we went outside and we're looking towards the coast mountains and all you could hear is just a vibration. It was going, ah, and it was, it was almost, it was spooky. And over the coast mountains came not one, not two, but 24 Condor B-36s. And those of, those of you out there that are not old enough to know what a B-36 is at the time in the, of the early 1950s, it was, I think it still is, but the largest strategic bomber ever built. It had a 260-foot wingspan. It had six 28-cylinder uh, Wasp major engines and four jets. And it could fly for 50 hours unrefueled. And to see 24 of those coming over the, coming over, uh, the coast mountains, at probably under 5,000 feet because they were on their way to Travis, is something you don't, you don't forget. And that's where my love affair for machines in general and airplanes specifically began. So fast forward, uh, mid 1950s. I'm I'm 77 today. So this I was born in 45. So I have a buddy of mine. His dad is the base commander at Moffett Field Naval Air Station, and we're referred to as Captain Smith's son and that friend of his. And of course, I was that friend of his. And I was over there all the time. And we had the run of the base. Everybody knew who we were. And one afternoon, we were, uh, I, I'd come over there to, you know, just to hang around and be around airplanes. And he said, hey, there's something really, really cool in, in the big hangar, which is Hangar 1. It's 1,100 feet long, 400 feet wide, 400 feet tall. And at the far north end of it was an area that was cordoned off. Now, Danny and I had the run of Moffett Field. We, we didn't go on the taxiways. We didn't go on the runways. But we were pretty much everywhere else on that base. And we, be, we were, at, we were that, there so often we came in, became invisible. But Danny says, there is something so cool that you got to see it. So we went to the north end, and there's curtains, big sign that says, keep out. 
No sign that says use of deadly force authorized. Of course, you're not going to shoot a 10-year-old. So we went behind the curtains, and there, still, it was still classified secret at the time, but there was the prototype XF-104 Starfighter. And this is, I mean, for a kid who, who absolutely is passionate about airplanes, this, this was it. This was the beginning of my obsession with the skunk works. And we're walking around it. Of course, they had those seven-foot wings, the, the real sharp leading edge. And uh, it, was just, it was just very, very cool. And Danny said, well, get in the cockpit. So I, I was a little bit hesitant, but hey, I'm 10. I got to sit in the world's coolest jet. So we opened the canopy. I get in. I close the canopy. Danny latches it. And I'm in there for about two minutes. And I started getting a little bit claustrophobic and a little bit nervous because I know I'm sitting on an ejection seat. I wasn't aware at the time that they take those things out when they put them in wind tunnels. So I wasn't, uh, there was no fear of me you know, being ejected out of the airplane, but I didn't know that. So I went to unlatch the canopy and the latch mechanism jammed. Danny couldn't open it from the outside because he wasn't strong enough and I was incapable. I was afraid to touch anything. So we had to, he had to go get shore patrol and the Marine guards and some maintenance guys to come into this classified area and take this 10 year old out of the cockpit of the XF-104. So that was the beginning of my passion of all things Skunk Works. And consequently, I ended up joining the Air Force and I ended up at Lowry Air Force Base in Denver. That now we're fast forwarded to February of 1964. I have a special day where I'm a communication specialist, uh, specializes in ground-based telemetry and such. And I get set of orders to go to Edwards Air Force Base in California to support three programs for Category 1 testing. And they listed two of them. One was the YC-141 Starlifter, a Lockheed uh, airplane. The other was the North American XB-70 Valkyrie, and a classified program. I arrived there, you know, say the last week of February. Saturday morning, I believe it was the 29th of February, it was a leap year. Something set off the deluge system and the fire alarms on the flight line. And I had a flight line badge, but we were, the barracks were eight miles from the flight line and someone had already taken the truck that morning. So I had to, I had to wait. I knew something cool had come in. I didn't know what it was. And what it was, Two Blackbirds came in from Area 51. They came straight in, and they had the engines running, but they had turned uh, for the rear end of the aircraft to be pushed into the hangar, but the engines were still running. And the heat from four J-58 set off the deluge system in the hangar and about drowned the Lockheed reps that are in there. So uh, I didn't hear anything. I didn't see anything uh, the rest of the weekend. You heard stuff during the week. And I had I had worked an awful lot of overtime, so I had a uh, I had a, uh, four days off, and it was a Tuesday. It was March tenth, nineteen sixty four. It's about three fifteen in the afternoon. We're waiting for the shuttle plane to go from Edwards into Hawthorne, where North where Northrop had their headquarters, there on Prairie Avenue. And I hear this roar. Uh, down the flight line, I see debris and stuff being blown across Rogers Dry Lake, and I run down the taxiway, and I look towards what was the new tower, which is now the old tower at Edwards, 
And I, at first I thought it was the X-15 rocket, the North American X-15 rocket plane, but people were too small. About that time they said, hey, we're loading. So I had to run back up, got in the airplane and it was a Piaggio, an Italian airplane. It was a go-wing pusher type, but it was just uh, two rows of seats. Uh, everybody had an aisle, everybody had a window seat. And we took off and headed over Rogers Dry Lake and banked over the XB-70 engine run-up test pad. And I looked down and I'm looking straight down on the top of a Lockheed YF-12 Blackbird, the interceptor version of the uh, A-12 and the SR-71. And it, uh, when I came back the end of the week, walk in the Edwards, uh, into our shop, shop at, at Edwards Monday morning, hand me a set of orders, and it is to uh, the Lockheed hangar. And with that, I, I took my, I walked into the back of the Lockheed hangar, and I'm looking at the back of two Blackbirds. I have never been the same since. It has affected everything, everything about me. And that was the beginning of my obsession, or my ex-wives call it my patent. You know, um, it was a millstone. It was a passion that has, ne- you know, that has never waned you know, in 60 or 70 years. So I have a, a love affair with airplanes. I have a love affair with Lockheed and the Skunk Works. And you know, down, you know, down the road a ways, I, uh, I also became friends with a lot of, uh, of interesting people all of them having a, uh, an interest, similar interest of mine. And one of those people is, who we're going to talk about tonight is a, uh, he was, the best way to describe this guy, he was a one of a kind. He was a Buck Rogers. He was, there isn't anybody like this person. And most of you have heard of Learjet and what a Learjet is. And it was the first private uh, business jet. And it was brought to the world by William Lear, of, of, of course, of Learjet fan. And his, one, of his, one of his offsprings was John Lear. And in 1973-74 time frame, I had the, the honor to meet John Lear. And he is the most, he's, he's probably why I'm where I'm at today. John still holds 15 world FAI world records for going around the <clears throat> flying around the world in his dad's Learjet on his 16th birthday. And that has never, that, uh, that will probably never be broken just because of the tensions we have in the world and where you can't fly, uh, where you could way back then. Hey James, can I give you a, a little bit of a break so you can catch sure. your breath? I want to tell a story about a Learjet and ABC. Sure. We had to paint the nightline set in Washington and a director had ABC charter a Learjet to fly two cans of paint down. And you know how much that had to cost to, to yeah, charter yep. a Learjet. Oh, that's kind of weird stuff that went on at ABC. So I want you to continue. Have you caught your breath now? Yep. You, you're doing yep. great. Go ahead. Okay. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> I met John Lear through a, a another dear friend of mine named John Andrews, and John Andrews was the plastic kit manager, development manager for Tester Models. 
But because of my friendship with uh, John Lear, uh, it has brought me to places that I never thought I'd go. Um, John Lear is <clears throat> who I was with the first time I photographed an F-117. John Lear was the first guy I was with when we actually drove into Area 51 in 1989. John Lear is the guy I was with who introduced me to a, a young man who works in a place called S4. And the list goes on and on. But the way I uh, saw my first F-117, the, the world had announced the existence of it. The Air Force announced the existence of the F-117 in November of 88. Uh, the, and during that same month, they also announced the existence of the B-2 stealth bomber. So here are two stealth aircraft, one made by Lockheed Skunk Works, one made by Northrop. And I was going to have an opportunity, uh, I didn't know at the time, uh, a couple of weeks later to see, to see one in person. So fast forward to early January of 1989. It's been about 45 days since they announced <clears throat> the existence of the F-117. John and I are driving up US-95 out of Las Vegas. We're just north of Scotty's Junction. Scotty's Junction is, is infamous for having, there's a house of ill repute there that the government took over. And I don't know how they did it, but they ran it out of business. And we're about, uh, now we're about 15 miles north of Scotty's Junction and an F-117 stealth fighter at flying at about 1,500 feet above the road, drive, flies right across, right in front of us, and I almost crashed the car. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I mean, I, I had seen a real bad picture of it, but this was this was live and in person. So we got to town of Tonopah. We grabbed a quick bite. Uh, we uh, we hit US six and went out uh, east about 14 miles. There's a huge sign that says Tonopah Test Range. We drove down that road 18 miles, and you come to the main gate at TTR, and you can't, I, I didn't have access to the base, but we just drove along the fence line, which is public lands, and you're looking down on the whole facility, about 60 hangars, all sorts of activity there, and this is before digital cameras, so I have a, uh, I, I have a Nikon, I'm shooting print film. I'm shooting Kodakolor 100. I have a real, I have some really good uh, telephoto lenses, and we're waiting for something to happen. You know, we're there about a half an hour, and I look to the north, and I see a, a big black dot with a light underneath it, maybe 18, 20 miles away, and a little white dot with a white underneath, light underneath it, right next to it. I thought to myself, well, that's got to be an F-117 and a photo chase. And sure as shooting, here it comes. I'm and I have my uh, you know, I have my camera up, it's all, you know, I have it set for infinity, I'm uh, I zoomed in, and as, as the viewfinder is filling up with F-117, I was like a 10-year-old kid seeing a naked woman for the first time. My whole, whole body was vibrating. I didn't know how to stop it. I, I mean, I'm trying my best to just hold my breath and take, some, take the shots. I went through all 16, all 36 exposures and I uh, told John, said, well, let's, let's get back to Vegas. We gotta, I got to get to a photo mat to get the film processed. And again, you have to have white hair to know what a photo mat is. And they're now, they, today they're, they've been taken over by coffee baristas. But you used to be able to drop your film off there and pick it up the next day and process to print it. 
So we had, uh, we're headed, headed in the uh, east. We hit the extraterrestrial highway that goes, goes through the, the beautiful downtown Rachel, Nevada. We had a quick bite at the little alien. And John said, and again, I'm with John Lear, and said that uh, by the time we get back to uh, Vegas, it, you know, the photomats will probably be closed. So, but I got a, I got a new, I got a new friend coming over. He just moved here from Albuquerque. I think you'll enjoy him. So we get back to his house, and it's a little bit after 9 p.m. We're in his study, and I hear, I hear the, uh, uh, I hear the uh, knock on the front door. John goes, answers it. He brings it, you know, he brings this young man in, nice looking guy, very cordial. And then they said, I introduced myself as Jim Goodall, and he said. Uh, my name is Bob Lazar. I just moved here. I'm interviewing for a job out in the desert. Don't know what I'm going to be doing, but it could be fun. He said, I'm a nuclear physicist. I was with Sandia and just moved here from Albuquerque. So that's great. So I, then I told him what my dilemma was. I had this print film of the first guy to photograph the 117. And he said, well, he said, I have a, I have a C41 processing unit at home. Let's go to my place. I live off of West Charleston. So he jumped in his car. We're, we're about a block from Lear's house. And he stops and he looks at me and he says, you know, I feel sorry for Lear. I said, what do you mean? He said, that dumb SO believe, believes in UFOs. I mean, how stupid is that? I mean, his, his family you know, brought Learjet to the world and he believes in flying saucers. He said, Dan, says, I'm a nuclear physicist. If I can't prove it mathematically, or put my hands on it, it doesn't exist. So you can't, you know, say, and you can't put a gun to my head. I, you know, there's no way I'm gonna, you'll ever convince me that UFO is real. So we got, you know, we got to, uh, to Lazar's place, we got the film processed, and I had about a half a dozen out of 36 were still very, very crisp and sharp. So I had the first photos of the 117 that uh, went out to about 10 or 15 different uh, uh, publications, including Aviation Week. So that was my, that was my introduction to, to Robert Lazar. And he's, uh, and I met him because I'm a friend of John Lear's. And John Lear is someone that he's a one-off. He <laughs> flew for Continental Air Service for 14 years. Continental Air Service is a subsidiary of Air America. He is uh, I think he was typerated in 58 different uh, aircraft. He was also a certified A&P. He was a certified flight instructor, both in jets and in uh, multi-engine prop aircraft and in helicopters. There wasn't anything related to aviation that John didn't do. And that friendship started almost 50 years ago. And he's, it was, those of us, those of us are old enough who went to Disneyland back when they first opened up, it was like a golden e-ticket. It was the most, probably the most exciting, interesting people I've that have ever come in, into my life is because of John Lear. Mm-hmm. And he passed away here on the, uh, uh, I think it was the 29th of March. He was, he'd been in ill health for a number of years. He's been in. You know, he, when he was still a teenager, he you know he crashed he crashed two airplanes and he and he shattered literally shattered his feet. 
So his, his last 15, 20 years uh, on the planet, uh, he was confined to a wheelchair, but it, or not wheelchair, but a electric cart or a, a walker. And that was just a sad thing to see. But we had his memorial service in Las Vegas on the 24th of April. It was attended by, you know, about 100 people, some of the wildest different types of people you can ever see all gathered in one spot. And like his daughter said, you know, he kept a lot of those people away from each other. And the only time we ever, ever came all together was at his uh, memorial service. So John was, John was just a very, very special person and a, and a one of a kind and some of the stuff he pulled and we'll, we'll get into it you know, a little bit down the road a ways, but he's pulled some stuff that you wouldn't believe. And one of the funniest things, I don't know if you can use profanity here. And if, if, I, if it, if you do, you can, you can beat me, but this is 1996. The F-117s have moved out of Tonopah test range is supposedly in caretaker status. And we'd heard, we'd heard differently that uh, there was stuff going in there. And I'd heard that they had put a third perimeter around the flight line. So John Lair are at the fence line. It's middle of June, 11 o'clock at night. And we're sitting on our lawn chairs. We have, we have generation one night vision goggles on. You know, they work just fine for what we were doing. And to the south, on the south side of the fence, now we're, in, we're on the public land side. And the south side of the fence is a restricted area. And there's three armored personnel carriers, one coming up from the south, one from the west, one from the east. And they're heading towards us. Their lights are off. And I stand up and yell real loud, hey, we're good guys. We're taxpayers. And all of a sudden, we had floodlights on us. John had three little red dots on his chest. I had three little red dots on my chest. And then I see this other pickup truck coming down the public land side and parked behind John's pickup. And he comes, you know, a guy, gentleman comes around. He's in desert utilities. He has his hand on his nine millimeter Beretta. And he says, you're in a restricted area and I order you to leave. And I said, sir, I don't know who you are, but this is public lands and I don't have to go anywhere. I said, I am ordering you to leave. I'm captain so-and-so with ASI. And that stood for Advanced Security, Inc. I said, oh, you're a rent-a-cop. You don't have jurisdiction on this side of the fence. And this guy's getting pissed. And he said, look, he says, I've been deputized by Nye, Lincoln, and Esmeralda County to uphold the laws of the state of Nevada and the federal government. You're in a restricted area, and I'm ordering you to leave. So I pulled out this handy-dandy map oh, made by the federal government that shows restricted areas. I said, sir, if you look at the if you look at the the base of the fence post where my buddy has his feet up on the barbed wire, there's a USGS medallion that gives the longitude and latitude to the second. And we're in public lands, and I can be here for 15 consecutive days without asking anybody's permission. And he's getting more pissed as we go on. He's, and he says, I want to see some ID. I said, I don't have to show you squat. And he's getting more upset. And he said, well, I tell you what, you show me yours, I'll show you mine. So he hands me his ASI badge. And I said, sir, this is not a valid form of ID. I need something issued by the state or federal government. And he's getting more pissed. So he hands me his Nevada driver's license. I don't have my, my reading glasses on. So I said, fine. So 
At the time, I called Minnesota home. I gave him my Minnesota license. Lear pulls out his you know, driver's license. He lives in Las Vegas. And he hands it to a guy on the south side of the fence who takes it over to the supervisor. And we, I, can, I can see him. Uh, we still have the floodlights on us, but uh, I, can, yeah, I can see the guy wandering over to the uh, to that particular uh, armored personnel carrier. He hands it to the supervisor, and he turns the interior lights on. And this this is what, exactly what I heard. Oh shit! It's good all in Lear. Lights went off. The red dots went away. <laughs> Everybody dispersed, and they knew. But we knew that nothing was going to happen that night because. It was good all in Lear at the fence line. So that's just one of many, many uh, stories I, I've done with the John Lear, and and I'm going to miss it. Something terrible. He he just he just put a there was something about him. He had a he had a, a bizarre sense of humor. He you know you could think he is he is so bent out of shape at you. He just you know he he, he just assume pull a gun out and shoot you and get, put you out of your misery. He's cussing me up and down and whatever. And all of a sudden, you see this twinkle in his eye. I said, "Where are you, sob?" And then he let—he had the best laugh. He let out, let out this belly laugh, and just, just—he would just almost wet his pants. He'd be laughing so hard. So that is, you know, that is, uh, you know, the heart, you know, just a smidgen of what John Lear represented to me in my life, and I'm, a, and I. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. I wouldn't have met John. Uh, I, I wouldn't have met uh, Bob Lazar if it wasn't for him. I wouldn't have uh, been one of the first persons to go up to the top of White Sides overlooking Area 51 if it wasn't for John Lear. I wouldn't have met George Knapp from KLIS uh, if it wasn't for John Lear. And I wouldn't have gone to Desert Blast and seen some of the crazy stuff that he and Lazar did out in the desert. I mean, my gosh, they, one of the crazy things they did, they had had a thing for 13 years until Bob decided it was getting too popular and he quit it. But we used to make commercial grade fireworks in his garage. I'm sure if, I'm sure if his neighbors knew that there were 500 to a thousand pounds of black powder in a, in a, behind a false wall in his garage, they would not have been happy. But uh, they go out and they they blow up things. They fire machines. They go out to a, to a, a dry lake bed, and because it became so popular, he wouldn't tell anybody when or where until about 24 hours before the event. And he'd get up to 1,500 people out there. But one of the crazy things he did. They went to uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, rented a car, put out, took out all the insurance you could take on it to make sure if it got damaged, it would be fully covered. And then they proceeded to put it out in the middle of the lake bed. They had Thompson sub- submachine gun, 50 caliber you know, machine gun, and they just blew the snot out of this rent-a-car. I mean, literally, they, they were using armor-piercing weapons, so it was going through, it was going through the... Uh, engine block the thing was just totally destroyed and when they brought it back to enterprise they had it on a flatbed and they brought it in and they unloaded it and the guy comes down what the hell happened to my car and and john says i don't know so we were at a we were at a function in a not so good neighborhood and when we came out this is what it looked like but it is fully covered insurance wise right they said yeah but 
what did you do to my car? And unfortunately, I don't think there are any photographs exist of it. So, uh, okay. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you right there. This is okay. good. This is good stuff. Hey, um, I want you, we're going to, we're going to take a break. It's going to be about uh, approximately three minutes long. I, okay. want you, I want you to go get some water, wet your whistle, because uh, I don't want you getting hoarse in the middle of the show. And uh, when we come back, uh, we can pick up where you left off, and I can ask some more questions. I, I can ask some questions because I haven't listened to anything. I've been mesmerized by all the stuff you've been telling us. So um, go get your water, and uh, okay. I'll be back. We'll be back in about uh, three minutes. And you'll you'll be refreshed, I hope. And uh, All right. you guys are listening to the other side of midnight. Our guest tonight is uh, James Goodall, and I'm your host uh, instead of Richard uh, Keith Morgan. And we'll be back after this break. If you're in. Hyperdimensional One thing You'll find is essential Is our club 19.5 It's a hyperdimensional Storage case A treasure trove Of outer space Our club 19.5 I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So like you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was, there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now, what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community. But he was vilified and attacked. 
and that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Aneta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. And we're having a great conversation. Well, actually, I'm I'm letting James tell you his history because I've got as much stuff probably in my head as he's got in our lifetimes that we've been doing the things that we've been doing. And we need to make sure this stuff gets documented. And that's what we're doing with this historical record that we're making right now. And you guys are listening to it live. And um, we, we need guys like this who've experienced and know the ropes, been there, done that, to pass it on to the next generation so they don't have to start from scratch and listen to the uh, disinformation to try to focus them in the wrong directions. Because most people will never get to hear the kind of stories that uh, James is telling us at this point in time. Because it's, it's things that they don't want us to know, they didn't want us to know, and now that they're finally coming forward and saying, well, there's these UAPs, UFOs, now it's time for us to, to go ahead and go forward. And we can't move into the next generation of major technologies until these people actually get up off of the fact that they've known about all of this stuff for the longest time. So with that... Uh, running that down to you. Hopefully James is back from uh, yeah, wedding I'm, his whistle. I'm, okay. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm back. I don't know about my voice, but um, mm. it gets this way in the evening anyway. And people knew me from 40 years ago. They said, well, your voice is totally different than it was way back when. I had, uh, I had a breathing tube down my throat going through brain surgery for 11 hours here. Uh, the day challenger blew up and my voice has been a little bit gravelly ever since, but I'm alive, so I'm I'm happy with that part. But but we're going back to uh, uh, talking about John Lear and some of the crazy stuff that's going on in the desert, and just to sort of a uh, uh, give you an idea of, of where I'm coming from in today's world is I'm a published author among other things. I'm working on my. Uh, my 29th book is at the printer. My 28th book is still being worked on, and I have to, I'm just waiting for the Navy. But I have, uh, because of my friendship with John Lear and the people that were introduced to me by John Lear, I have, uh, I've had a, 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 the time of my life. One, you know, one of the, the uh, 
people that I met, not maybe directly because of John, but uh, part and parcel because of John Lear, is I became friends with uh, Mr. Ben Rich. Ben Rich replaced Kelly Johnson as the head of the Lockheed Skunk Works, the most advanced aeronautical design group on the planet. And we spoke, uh, we spoke pretty consistently once a quarter for about 25 years. If I didn't call him, he called me. If I called him and he was in a meeting, June would still put him through and I was the secretary. He would always answer my calls. He'd put me on speakerphone and we'd sit there and talk about things that go bump in the night or half hour, 45 minutes, sometimes even approaching an hour. This is the president of the Lockheed Skunk Works, a real important guy. And he took time out of his day to talk to me. I'm, I'm not anybody special. I, I happen to love what comes out of the Skunk Works. And you know, because of that, I have, it opened a door that I never thought would open. I didn't even know the door was there to be opened. But one of the things that because of John Lear and because of my friendship with, with the people in his circle, Ben called me in August of 89. And he said, Jim said, the Blackbirds, and those, those, I hope everybody knows what an SR-71 Blackbird is. It's the world's only operational 2,100-mile-an-hour spy plane. It's, now, it's been retired for 30 years, which I find amazing. Uh, John, and, uh, James? Yes. Uh, uh, let me direct people to the, uh, the show page and your items. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's banner, uh, you go and you get to the show page, then you can go down a little bit to the fast links and click on James and it will take you to James items. And then you'll get to see what a blackbird looks like. Uh, Keith. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's also, it's the plane that the X files or X files, the X men fly okay. for comic book and movie fans. Yeah. Okay. At least that's, you know, supposedly what it is. So that's where, if somebody, can't get to the web page. That's you've seen it in in the X Men movies. It's slightly modified for a representation of it. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. There's the Shiara technology that gives it the ability to go into space, but that's not relevant here. Yeah, no, that's all. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so Ben, you know, Ben calls me and, he's, and he said, Jim says I have it from the horse's mouth. I don't know if that was Chip O'Neill or who it was back at the, you know back in '89. Uh, I think he was gone by then, but it's not, that's not important. He said, if anybody I know can scrounge a blackbird, it'd be you. So I said, okay, I'm going to start working on it. And the first thing I did the next day is I, was, I went over to the guard base and I uh, got on their, your military. This is before cell phones and you didn't want to pay for a long distance call. You'd go on Autobahn or DSN, as they called it. And I called the Adjutant General for the State of New York National Guard, both the Air and the Army Guard, and uh, called the secretary, answered the phone, and said, General Weaver's uh, office. I said, this is Sergeant Goodall with the 133rd. Is General Weaver available? Just a second, Sarge, I'll put you through. Now, you can do this in the Air Guard. You you don't do it in the regular regular military. You're violating the chain of command. But the Air Guard, you don't have one. 
So General Weaver gets on and said, Sarge, how can I help you? And I said, sir, I got a proposition for you. He said, well, what's that? It said, how would the New York Air Guard like to move the world's fastest airplane in a couple of your C-5s? Quite, you know, he was dead quiet for a few seconds. He said, do you mean the Blackbird? I said, yes, sir. He said, when you're ready, you call Will Hall. So fast forward a little bit, Arnie Gunderson, who was Mr. J-58, that was, the, that was the engine used in the Blackbird. They were trying to get a Blackbird for West Palm Beach. And he'd inquired into the Air Force what it would cost to lease a, a C-5. And they said that $967,000 a day plus gas. And I scrounged two, you know, two C-5s for eight days each. So uh, Sergeant Bilko doesn't have anything on me. But so, you know, this, this went forward. I went to my boss, you know, General Broman, General Schwab. He was a two-star. So I want to get a Blackbird for our museum. And they both laughed at me. I said, generals, rather than, you know, rather than laugh at me, why don't you give me the opportunity to fail? I said, right, Smarty, how are you going to get it here? I said, they got that covered. And that's what I told them about uh, the New York Air Guard. And they just scratched their heads. <laughs> they just, good, good. All I don't, I don't, I don't know, want to know how you did it, but uh, we'll, we'll help push the paperwork through. So I got the, uh, the authorization from the Air Force Museum in September of, uh, actually August of uh, 90, that they were turning over the eighth production CIA version of the Blackbird. The, uh, and the designation is A, like an article 12. So I, had, I got the eighth production, A12, was assigned to us. So we went to Palmdale on the uh, 10th of October of 91, a question of 90. And this was, uh, we took the airplane apart in, in two and a half days. I had three E9 chief master sergeants, three E8 senior master sergeants, a gaggle of master sergeants, E7s, and a couple of us tech sergeants. We took that airplane apart in two and a half days. We had to leave, we came back uh, two weeks later, and we had arranged for the C-5s, and we loaded the C-5 up, flew from Palmdale to Travis for gas, spent the night there. And we only had about an inch and a half of clearance, and we rolled this, the Blackbird into the, into the C-5. So the, on the 27th of October, we're heading back to uh, Minneapolis. We, we leave Travis. We're out about you know, 45 minutes, and... The, uh, the chief is going down to check the load, and I asked if I can go with him, and he said, sure, come on down. So I went down, and I decided I was going to do something no one else has done. I climbed up on the landing gear. We had the wings cut off, but it was on its gear. I walked along the shines. I had the canopy blocked open with wheel chalk. I had a five-gallon bucket in, on the ejection seat with a cushion on top, and it was all, you know, the seat was all the way down. I get in the cockpit, I close the canopy, and I'm in there for about 45 minutes. And I'm just going zoom, zoom, just, you know, I mean, I'm a kid. I'm, I'm, I'm 10 years old. Instead of being locked in the cockpit of the XF-104, I'm in the cockpit of the world's fastest operational spy plane, the Blackbird. And I get a rap on the bottom of the fuselage, said, hey, we got to go back up. So we head back upstairs. 
in the state five. And now we're coming in our final. We're about 35, 40 minutes out of Minneapolis. And the chief comes back to me and he said, the boss said, you can be in the cockpit when we land. Well, I'm already the forward of the wing box, so I'm in the cockpit area. And he said, no, no, downstairs. So I went back downstairs, got into the cockpit, and uh, the airplane landed, and we unloaded. And I called Ben the next day, and I said, Ben, I think I have a, a Blackbird record that no one on the planet could can achieve. Not now, not later, not ever. I'm the only one. He said, what's that? He said, I'm the only person in the world to have been in the cockpit of a Blackbird at 33,000 feet at Mach 0.72 inside another airplane. And I landed that same airplane inside another airplane. And Ben just started laughing. He said, I'm almost tempted to issue a Mach 3 card, actually Mach 3 minus card for you, because no one will be able to top that. So it's, that's my that's my primary claim to fame when it comes to airplanes. I'm not a pilot, uh, but I have been in the cockpit of some of the most incredible airplanes in the world, the Blackbird being one of them, including the B-2 and the F-117 and uh, MiG-29C, uh, which is the nuclear-capable uh, uh, MiG-29. And it's just been uh, it's just been a kick. But one of the things that, like I said, I, I talked to Ben about once a quarter for 25 years, and it's now, it's, uh, it's, it's late 90s, or mid, mid to late 90s. Ben Rich is in the hospital. He's, he's uh, dying of esophageal cancer. He was uh, around all the nasty chemicals used with making uh, low observable airplanes. And we were, you know, we were talking, and uh, we're talking about our friend John Lear and my, you know, our mutual friend, the late John Andrews. And we, when we talk, started talking about a bunch of stuff, and, he, and then Ben says, Jim, we have things out in the desert that's 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. Not what you think in building 50 years, but what you can comprehend. And I can comprehend a heck of a lot. And if you've seen movies like Star Trek or Star Wars, we've been there done that or decided it wasn't worth the effort. And prior to that, in 1993 at, at UCLA, it was a grad, aeronautical graduate students, and Ben was the keynote speaker. He said basically the same thing. He said, we have the ability to take ET home. Now think about that for a second. This is the mid nineties. This is, if anybody in the world knows what's happening in the, in the spooky world, in the black, black world of, of secret programs, it would have been Ben Rich. And Ben says, we have the ability to take ET home, but our government will not allow us to release that information. And it's just one of the most frustrating things in the world. I mean, we have that technology. And to sort of support uh, UFOs or, or other worlds and stuff like that, I was, a, I was a docent at Kitt Peak National Observatories outside of Tucson for a couple of years. And they have the largest concentration of optical telescopes in the world is at Kitt Peak. They have 22 optical telescopes every, you know, running from a 12-inch primary mirror 
to a 13-foot primary mirror on the Mayall uh, four-meter telescope. And they have two uh, radio telescopes, a 12-meter and a 25-meter. One of the one of the other uh, telescopes on the on the mountain was the 2.1 meter, which is about an eight-foot uh, primary mirror, and it was run and controlled by Caltech for five years. And over their five over this period of five years, their job was to look at a very small postage stamp size part of our Milky Way, not the universe, but just our Milky Way looking for exoplanets. And over the course of the, the five years, using adaptive optics and remote, remote operation, they were able to catalog and name and identify 8,000 exoplanets. And just think about that. I mean, that's a, there's a lot, there's a, for, for a world that didn't think that we were the, that, that thought we were the only ones, it turns out we're not. So just before I, I left being a volunteer, we had a gathering of all of the astronomers, all of the technicians, and all of the docents uh, down at the uh, University of Arizona, their main campus, which is also the headquarters for the National Optical Astronomy Observatories, NOAOA. And we had one of the top uh, astronomers the National Science Foundation was, our, was the speaker. It was beer and pizza in an information type of uh, gathering. And he, after he went through some of the other stuff that, were, you know, that we had been talking about, he got to the part that was interesting. He said he had just returned from a worldwide gathering of everyone that's, that's searching for exoplanets, all the astronomers, all the uh, telescopes that are out there used, you know, being used to look for exoplanets. And said, based on the proven mathematical formulas that have, you know, that have uh, proven to be correct over you know, over the years. He said we calculate every star in the universe, and that's an incredible number. You can't even put the decimal points, you know, in your head. There's just too many of them, not counting the numbers. But for every star in the universe, there's one and a half planets, and for every out of that incredible number of planets, they figure that there are in the neighborhood of 2 billion, that's with a B, 2 billion Earth-like planets orbiting a similar-sized brown dwarf star as our sun in the inhabitable zone with liquid water. And to quote Jodie Foster's character in Carl Sagan's movie, Contact, if we're the only ones, what a waste of space. So you couple, couple that with the fact that uh, Bob Lazar's, you know, said he was working on reverse engineering of a propulsion system for alien spacecraft. You take the, you know, the conversation I had with Ben Rich just before he died. You take the, uh, the piece that, uh, you know, he spoke about it at UCLA in 90, I think it was 93. It was shortly after he retired from the Skunk Works. That leads me to believe that we're not alone. And there's a lot of stuff out there that, that, that can't be explained. 
And it's just, I mean, that's why when I go outside, I look, I look up at the sky all the time. And I, I have never, I have never felt that we were alone. And James, <laughs> yes. uh, I, I had encounters of the third kind and I know we're not alone. Uh, when I first had my first encounter, I just thought it was a dream. And when I had the second one, nope, they left evidence on me that proved that, hey, they were there. And I knew something was going on. Um, my first sighting of a craft making a 90-degree turn at full speed and then cutting back at a 45-degree angle and then back at another 45 and still climbing, I I knew that nothing could make a turn like that at full speed and the retention of vision showed the angles that it was making while I'm looking at it. And that's what caught my eye. That kind of technology does exist. We just aren't privy to it. There's two. Correct. Correct. There's two civilizations. There's the one where we're flying into space on a flame. And there's the other one that's using the electromagnetic spectrum of the universe to get from point A to point B. No flame. Look, I mean, to add a little bit to that, I have a, he passed away here last year or year before last due to COVID. He was a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. He flew SR-71s. And his name was Dave Fruhoff. And he was a friend of mine. He, you know, he called uh, Lynchburg, Tennessee, the home of Jack Daniels as his home. And my dad lived in Tullahoma. So every time I visit my dad, I go visit Dave. But I was interviewing him because uh, he, he was a student pilot when he actually had a bailout of a Blackbird. You know, they had a total electrical failure. So we, 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 I went there to talk about that. And I asked him, I said, hey, Dave, he said, do you believe in UFOs? And he said, his eyes got really big. He said, absolutely, positively, they do exist. I said, I figured he would just poo-poo me away. And when I asked him, you want to expand upon that? And he said, sure. And I just, yeah, I was, I was really taken back. And he said he was flying a night training mission out of Kadena, Okinawa in uh, late 72, early 73. It's still, the Vietnam War is still hot and heavy. He's flying a night training mission. He's at 78,000 feet in altitude He's doing Mach 2.7, which is about 1,800 miles an hour, 1,700 miles an hour. He's going straight and level. There's a three-quarter moon off to his left, and he gets a glint off of something reflective five or six miles off to his right and five or 6,000 feet above him. So he contacts Kadena on Secure Voice to see if another SR-71 is up there. And he said, no, you're up there by yourself. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm going to go take a look. So he pushes the throttle forward, never takes his eyes off the object. And there's about a 10-degree bank. And he starts climbing and started, getting, and started heading towards this object. When he was still a couple thousand feet below it, still about a mile or so away, he's, he can't get the shape because there's too much reflection inside the cockpit. And he didn't want to open his visor. This thing took off at about a 30-degree angle of attack and left him in the dust. He said he lost sight of it going, going through between 180 and 200,000 feet, and it left him at going at least Mach 12. So fast forward to 1979, 1980, he retires from the Air Force. He has a real high clearance. 
He applies for and gets a job as facility manager at Area 51. So he got there. He knew you don't go asking questions if you're the newbie. You don't ask questions anyway, but you don't ask questions in a cl- in a classified work environment. So he was there about he was there about a year before he actually got enough courage to ask some of the guys at the club. Said, "Hey, did we ever flight test something here that can outrun a Blackbird?" And everybody said, "Not here." Doesn't mean it wasn't done somewhere else, but it wasn't flown out of here. So what did it, what did Dave Fruhoff chase? If it wasn't if it wasn't developed by Lockheed, if it wasn't built at the Skunk Works or the the Phantom Works for McDonnell Douglas and Boeing or the uh, Black Widow home there at uh, at Northrop Northrop Grumman, the stuff is out there. It's just that the fact that us peons don't have the clearance, don't have the wherewithal to know you know, to know where our tax money is being spent. And that's what I do. I'm a, I'm a pain in the butt to the military. I've had uh, a little red dots on my chest and, and I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of them. And did, I'm, I'm res- did Binrich ever say uh, something about there was a flaw in the math and they figured it out? And no, no. Cause we, uh, cause when I asked him to expand upon what he would, what he had just told me, he said, very typical of Ben Rich. No, I can't help you with that. And uh, and they, he had the nerve to die on me about ten days later, and that really broke my heart because he had agreed to give me a no holds barred interview, taped with a with a a analog clock behind him with the sweep second hand, so he can know if it was uh, edited or not. And he said, I had to get this book done with Leo Janos first. That's uh, his book on the, on the skunk works. So I never did have a chance to, to do a one-on-one, ask him any question that he would answer interview. Oh, yeah. Well, we're coming up on a break. Um, we're about a minute out. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I heard the story about the, you know, Ben Rich saying something about the, there was a flaw in the math, but they figured it out. And I met this Russian guy on a plane uh, to fly to Dallas. Uh, actually, it was a connecting flight. We had to stop at uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And he he recognized the Morgan curve on my shirt, but he didn't see the picture on the back. And he says, oh, the Morgan curve. And I said, this old guy's got pretty good eyesight. And he said, <laughs> And then he says, yeah, that's on Mars in the Sidonia region. And I said, excuse me, I want to sit next to him. <laughs> and he was Russian, He, but he didn't have a Russian accent. He said, yeah, you probably wonder why uh, I'm talking with a southern drawl. He said, yeah, I picked that up from the rednecks I was working with out there at Papoose. <laughs> and he's telling me about how they grew a ceramic lens for the, the uh, surveillance camera on SR-71. And I'm going grow a ceramic lens. He said that was the easy part. Getting it to stop from growing was the hard part. Okay, James, I'm going to be back. We're going to be back in a minute. We're going into break time. And uh, I would, uh, if anybody's got any uh, ideas of, uh, uh, or any questions, I think I'm going to have open lines in the last hour. All right, we'll be back in a minute. Mm-hmm. 
thesideofmidnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcasts heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. James has been giving us some really good information. We're talking a living history here. And I would, before we went to break, I would brought up uh, the Russian guy, Adipole, who worked uh, at Papoose Lake. Uh, he didn't tell me he worked at Papoose Lake. He said he worked at one of the lakes out in Nevada. And I said, you worked at Area 51? And he said, no. Uh, there's other lakes out there. And I said, Papoose Lake? And he said, oh, oh, you didn't hear that from me. He's telling me about uh, the kind of stuff that he was doing because he worked on the fuel for the SR-71 Blackbird. But then uh, he said he was a theoretical physicist, uh, but he never got his degree because Groman came along and hired him up immediately. And uh, But he said he had a... He he had a, a good background in all of the stuff that was going on, and um, they let him go. And about that time is the time that Bob Lazar said that um, they had let all the Russians go because they had figured something out, and they didn't want the Russians around to kind of, I guess, do what the, the Rosenbergs did. Uh, and hand that information over to the Russians. So the technology is there. We've had it for the longest time. Guys like Adipole and guys like James Goodall, they don't really get their props. They won't get their props until this stuff is finally released. (laughs) And after it is released, they they still may not get their props because these guys are going to act like we didn't know. But you've got living history here. 
with James Adipole, guys that have been doing this stuff behind the scenes for the longest time, and nobody knows they are there. That's why we're interviewing James, uh, but we're, we're talking about John Lear as well, because John Lear was a, a UFO investigator, and um, he had experiences. And <clears throat> Richard Hoagland, he used to not want to deal with UFOs. Well, I'm not going to talk about that. I don't know. I'm not going there. There's, there's no solid evidence. Well, his tune has changed, too. Just like the media, when people would do a news report on UFOs and they'd be snickering and laughing, they don't laugh anymore. Because when the Navy came out and said, hey, look at these videos, these things are real, they shut up and started to listen. Where they go from here, what? Oh, oh, what did you want to say, Jim? I know I, I didn't say anything. Uh, oh, oh. Oh, that was me clear. That was me clear in my throat. Sorry. Oh. Um, so yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Keith. I have a, I have a question. Okay. Well, we're we're in a transition, and we're growing up. The question is, are we ready to grow up and find out that hey, we are not the only kids in the neighborhood? So, what's your question, Ron? Hey. Uh, well, for James, James, uh, since we're, as Keith pointed out, uh, we were, we put John Lear on the header there. I just wondered, in your opinion, since you knew him for so long, was uh, was he in, was he a digger or was he just collecting information that he bumped into because of his incredible uh, aviation career? Oh no, he uh, he tracked people down. And both, yeah, both John and I did this long before there was an internet. So if you were going to talk to somebody, you had to fly to the destination that person called home or where, he, where they worked. You had to get them on the phone or write them a letter. Hopefully they would respond. And then you could sit down and talk with them. So there was, there was no thing. Of, I'm gonna, well, I'm going to Google this. Well, Google wasn't invented yet. You know, either was the internet when I started. I've been doing this. For 50 years I did it started doing it when when I was it did, never affected my security clearance directly but it, it I got a lot of static be, by what I did and uh, I just you know I I'm, I'm a truth seeker I'm a I'm a historian that's all my books are I write historical monographs on military aircraft naval ships and submarines in my, you know, my area of expertise is the Blackbird, the F-117, the B-2, Have Blue, Stealth in general, and uh, things that go bump in the night. Yeah, oh, well, you're a perfect candidate then. Yeah, the, yeah something I say, I say a lot is that uh, the, there are people walking around with degrees, tacked on to degrees, and um, ego tacked on to ego that... Uh, <laughs> They are no match for most writers because writers of historical works or even science fiction, they do so much research. They get their teeth so far into the subject matter so that they understand it to give a, you know, a background to their, whatever their narrative and their stories are. 
that it's you can't the academics can't match it because they start with a predetermined goal and try to get there. You know, it's different. The writers are absorbing the raw context information. So that's why I asked you. I just wondered if uh, Bob Lear had any had developed any feelings about why is somebody else here? You know, of course there's others out there. And a lot of them, probably most of them look like us, but you know, why are they here in the first place? Anyway, that's that's where I was going with it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, like I said, I started doing this long before there was the internet was developed and long before it became popular. But I can remember in the mid eighties I worked I I reported to Major General Wayne Gatlin. And he was my boss. He was he was chief of staff for air. And there was some stuff on the news about UFOs and I mean, you get a lot of chuckling when you talk about UFOs back then. And I said, General Gallon, I got a question. I said, I know I'm not a pilot. I was enlisted. I said, just let's, for the sake of it, say I'm a, I'm a pilot. I'm flying an F-4 or an F-16. And I encounter an unknown, a UFO, a flying saucer, a UAP, whatever you want to call them. I said, what do I do? He said, well, when your mission's over, you, you land the aircraft, you go for your post-flight debrief. And when you're done with that, you know, you go take a shower, get cleaned up, go, go to the club, get a couple, two or three really, really stiff drinks, down them, go back to your billet and forget everything you saw that day. I said, why is that? He said, well, if you want to destroy your career, that's what you do. You go up, you go tell the brass, hey, I chased a UFO. And the next thing you know, oh, gee, for some reason, you, you don't have any flying slots available for you anymore. And, oh, your promotion has been, de- you know, been declined. Oh, you and you didn't get promoted, you know, uh, at this particular point. So you're either being rifted or you're being released from the military. So you you did emptying wastebaskets in in Anchorage or something. Yeah, I mean it's just it's yeah. You're you're playing you're playing you're playing a game that you have you do have no idea what the rules are, and none of them are in your favor. So just shut up, forget about it, pretend like it never happened. I I was flying to Manchester for an ABC remote, and my plane was at. 30,000 feet, clouds were at 20,000 feet, all the way to the horizon, thick clouds. And I'm just looking out the window, you know, just gawking at the clouds. And then this disc comes out from underneath of the plane. It wasn't moving. It was us flying over top of it. And it's just hovering just just above the clouds at 20,000 feet. This thing was so huge. I think we could have gone down to, to the 20,000-foot uh, range and landed on that sucker. And I'm looking at this. The pilot had to see this. I, I was, like, amazed that nobody said anything. Nobody. But this was shortly after 9-11, and I didn't want to make a ruckus and say, hey, UFO out the right side of the plane. You know, no. I just looked at it. Watched it go under the wing because we were flying over it. It wasn't moving. And when I got off the plane, I just kind of looked at the, the the captain and just gave him this weird look with a little shit, nodded a shake of the head like, okay, I know you're not going to talk about that because they don't talk about it. They, they, they weren't going to talk about it because they didn't want to lose their jobs. But I'm, I'm wondering how they're handling this now 
how all of the major carriers are handling reports of things like this. Now that the Navy says, hey, these things are out there. They're in front of your planes. You, you can see them. Uh, how do you avoid them? You can't. They have to avoid well, us. They've got that technology well, to do it. Well, thing, things have changed so dramatically in the last probably six or seven years. Is Things have started to loosen up where it's no longer a taboo to report an unknown but there was a American Airlines flight. Uh, it, they were being controlled out of the uh, Albuquerque Center. And it, they, on the air, they broadcasted, and it was recorded by, by a friend of mine who is an electronic interceptor. He has a, a noise-activated recorder. Anybody transmits on these certain frequencies, he records all of it. And this American Airlines pilot says, oh my God, said Tower said, did you see that? Something... A, a tube just went flying directly across in front of us, going thousands of miles an hour. Do you have it on radar or something along those lines? And th- that was broadcast all over the planet. Hmm. So it's, it's, no, it's no longer a taboo to talk about UFOs. I know when, when Tucker Carlson came out along with the, uh, someone from the federal government said there, there are craft uh, flying in our over our military installations and in our airspace that were are not from from here, not from Earth. So I was talking. I was I was, I was up in Sholo, Arizona, with a buddy of mine, and we were talking to a couple guys out of the cousin brothers out of uh, Hawaii, and they had called Doc, and they were talking to him, and so they were looking for some guy who lives in Arizona named Jim Goodall. And Doc starts laughing. He said, "Well, he's about three feet from me." He said. Does he, does he know how to get hold of Lazar? And I, and I piped up and said, yeah, why? I said, would you call him and ask him what he thought of, of Tucker Carlson's re, uh, report? So I got, on the, I got on the phone, called him up, called his wife. And uh, she said, well, you're going to come in and give us a visit. And I said, well, soon, hopefully. And Bob got on the phone, and he has a very distinctive voice. And he said, you know, when it, when it first first reported I got really excited but then I said now wait a second there's one one guy from the government one guy uh, named Tucker Carlson talking about it I gotta wait for the other shoe to drop and then I'll get excited and it never it never did drop and if it wasn't for the fact that it was it uh, there was a chance of snow in his neighborhood I was supposed to be with Bob Lazar this last weekend and uh, and my car, my car cannot drive on snow at all or ice. I have a 435 horsepower Corvette with big tires, and it's a death trap on damp or frozen pavement. So I had to, I had to cancel my visit to visit Bob Lazar. I was going there up after John Lear's memorial service, but that fell apart. But the stuff, stuff is out there, and it's just fortunate, fortunately. Uh, more and more people are getting better uh, smartphones. I would love to see someone with a with a good Nikon or Canon with a you know with a 200 or 400 millimeter their top of the line lens or even a 600 millimeter. Let's get some detail on some of these objects that are out there. The 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 tri the, the triangles that are being pop are popping up everywhere all over the planet. And and the what one do you know the, about the triangles. 
Well, if they if they have a red or green light on 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 the wingtips, they're we made them. Right. Uh, if they if they don't and are sort of you know, translucent at times, maybe they're not from here. I but saw even, I saw a triangle uh, out here in Crofton, Maryland, um, and it was flying at treetop level. It was it wasn't flying; it was floating. I mean, it was going slow as molasses. And at first light came out from over the trees. It was huge. And something gave me the willies. And I didn't know what it was at the time. And then as that light came further out, then there was this red light that came out from behind that. And then these two lights in the corners of this triangle shape come out. And I now know what scared the hell out of me. Even though those lights were as bright as they were, they weren't lighting up the treetop level. They weren't lighting up the street. But they were bright as all get out of heck. And I'm going, how come the light isn't reaching the ground? What the heck Ooh. could do that? Okay. Cause I, I have a, I have a, okay. Sorry. It's all right. That's, I got a triangle report that I was, well, I, I was leaving the anecdotes out, but this was back uh, during the first Gulf War. Sorry, I didn't have the actual date, but I did not having a Nikon. I'm a Nikon fan myself. Uh, currently, I um, did a uh, I did a quick a color sketch after I went inside. Uh, it was overcast, but there was a full moon. Okay, and something made me go outside. It sounded like thunder. And so I walked out and I walked up on a hill to uh, get a better look at the sky. And there were big gaps in the clouds. And it, all of a sudden, this huge triangle. And these are low clouds. That, uh, so I don't know, what, 2,000 feet maybe? You know, uh, the uh, not much more. There are hills behind them and they weren't hitting those. Uh, they, uh, through this gap comes this gigantic triangle. And it was kind of a gray color. And it had five really large rectangular plates or windows on the bottom, and they were all different colors. And I was absolutely mesmerized by the fact that the colors, which were, and they were weird pastel colors, still bright though. It was like a turquoise and a yellow and a green one, kind of a grassy green, and a pink one. And they were... uh, the, the color was brightest right down the long center line of those panels, and it got, it kind of faded out toward the edges. It was kind of the opposite of what you might, might it's hard to describe because it didn't, didn't look like it was behaving properly. But on the rest of the surface, there were what looked like nozzles. That's how close and clear this thing was. They, were, they looked like the, if you knock the head off of a shower, Fitting, you know, the nozzle, the nozzle part that's left with a little pivot. They looked like that, or something that should be on somebody's lawn. And they were evenly spaced all over the bottom of this thing, and it wasn't uh, emitting anything. Uh, and it was going fairly slowly. So I got a good, I got a good scan look at it, and it was. Uh, but the noise that had drawn me outside seemed to be connected to it, but it wasn't coming from it. It was like distant thunder but the, it was like a roll that followed along with it as it moved so i'm saying okay this all has to mean something 
But I don't think that was one of ours because it didn't have any tip lights on any of the things. It was like an isosceles triangle. It wasn't even. But uh, and it seemed to have a bulge on the top when it finally when it passed fully over the glimpse I got of the back. It looked like there was something going on at the back. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I just I don't know what that was. But it was it's it sounded almost like there were a lot of them, and I just happened to see one of them that went over the gap in the clouds. So I that's that was the triangle sighting that I had. Well, and the and the triangles are being seen everywhere i mean we're talking about africa i think there's been reports in in, in antarctica uh all over you know there was a belgian and it, and flap that's when when i saw my triangle uh, uh, there was the belgian flap where the police officers and so forth were reporting these triangular craft with the three lights on the corners and, and the red light in the middle and dead silent and that's the way mine was. I was turning the radio down and rolling the window down. And my wife's going, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking at this. And you couldn't hear a peep out of it. And I kept wondering, why didn't I get out the car? Why didn't I get out the car? It was because, I, like I said, I had the willies because something didn't feel right. And I didn't realize what it was until I noticed that the light was not coming down to the ground. It wasn't lighting up the trees. Did you just have the round lights on? Did yours have the round lights on it yep. or the weird rectangular ones? Like, no, I mean, yeah, these are perfect rounds. I don't know. What, yeah, and I've seen pictures that people have grabbed of those. I've never seen anybody catch a photograph of one of these, but I've other people describe them. Oh, one one detail I left out. Sorry, the it was skimming the upper side of those clouds that it was passing over, so close that I could see the reflection of the colored light on the top of the clouds near the edge of the gaps. So it was literally skin, and if there were any other ones up there, they were all doing the same thing. It was like they were moving with, that's why they were relatively slow. They were moving with the cloud layer, like maybe they couldn't be detected on radar or something uh, if they were right next to the clouds. And all I could do was, you know, assemble details in my head. I don't know what was going on, but I'm, I don't think they were ours, but I don't know. And I don't know what those nozzles were. Did they have something to do with some sort of you know, stealth thing or camouflage that wasn't turned on, or was it? Were they spraying pathogens to kill the population below? I have no idea. Uh, uh, James. Yeah, there's something going on. Okay, yes. James. James. Um, yes. You attended uh, John's uh, memorial. Yep. And you said uh, it was unusual. George Knapp didn't show up. I was I was really disappointed. First of all, I was I was in Vegas for a gathering of uh, like-minded UFO nuts. I'm one of them. And we were at the Gold Nugget. And George was supposed to, you know, was going to be there on, on Saturday, the uh, the 23rd, uh, April 23rd. He didn't show. I figured he was tied up somewhere. But I said, thought for sure that on Sunday, he, w- he wouldn't miss John Lear's memorial service. And he did. And I I'm sure he has. You know, I, I don't. I don't uh, control his time, uh, nor you know, am I in a position to criticize him because he has a he has a real job. I'm retired, so uh, he may have been called out somewhere. But I was. Uh, if 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 anybody should have been there, uh, George Knapp should have been one of them, and I was the other one. If if someone was supposed to be there, it was going to be me, and I wouldn't have missed it for anything. And I saw John as early as uh, 
it was last November and uh, he had, they had sold the house and he was, uh, he was living by himself. His daughter, Allie would, would come over every day, make sure that he, uh, he had everything he needed and whatever. Uh, but John, I'm surprised John lasted as long as he did. When I saw him in 2015, I'd, I'd been at Nellis to do some shooting there at Red Flag, and I was supposed to give a presentation on the Blackbird, but uh, I was preempted because uh, a, wor- a worldwide event happened, and uh, you know they, you know, they didn't. You know, where I was supposed to speak wasn't available. But it's uh, what did John die of? It, well, he was uh, he was seventy nine and a half. He he died of burning the candle at both ends and in the middle while he you know while he was wearing a pair of gasoline shorts with a torch sticking out of his butt. I mean he he was going Mach five or Mach ten literally all the time. And he I mean that's that was his entire life. He had he had a he was a buccaneer. That's probably the best way to describe John Lear. He was a one of a kind buccaneer. He did things that you would only you would only read about in a fiction model in fiction uh, not model but you know fiction uh, related books and 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 whatever I mean there wasn't anything he couldn't he didn't do I mean, and the fact the fact that he'd been in at least two plane crashes one of them uh, when he, I think he was still in going to school in Switzerland he was doing some aerobatic uh, flying and he was he, he did a loop, miscalculated his altitude, and literally slammed into the ground. And if you can picture the rattle pedals being a bar, mm-hmm. and you take your hand and say, put the bar right in the middle of your palm, of your you know, middle of your your hand, and now bend your fingers down so they touch your the the heel. I mean the uh, the the bottom of your hand. That's what happened to his feet. He literally wrapped his feet around the rudder pedals where his toes touched his heel. And he shattered most of the bones in his feet. And that, that, uh, he suffered from that the rest of his life. I know back is, you know, even in the uh, 2010 timeframe, 2008 timeframe, he was, he was seriously talking about having his, his feet amputated just so he could you know, he could walk and he wouldn't be confined to a scooter or a walker and he was under constant pain and fortunately his daughter got him off of uh, all the opioids that the doctors were prescribing for him and he'd sleep three four days in a row he'd be up for a couple hours and then go back to sleep this went on for a couple years and finally, Ali, you know, got some intervention in there, got some, you know, a lot of changes, and he literally got off of all the opioids and and such. But he still smoked those nasty, smelly cigars. And I always told him, he says, I walked in there, he smoked one of his cigars, cigars, and I'd say, Hey, Lear, is the uh, the local dump on fire? What do you mean? I said, I, I'd swear that it smells like garbage burning. And he look and, and he look at his cigar and he said, "It's my cigar and it's a good one." <laughs> oh boy, he was a kind of like Cohiba. Yeah. 
yeah, he was a character. And there's and there's when it comes when it comes to aviation, when it comes to aeronautics, when it comes to things that go bump in the night, John used to spend his own time and his own money tracking down people that had claimed to be abducted. And when he found that person or persons, he would make arrangements in the uh, in the local area. He would he would uh, contact uh, whatever the the official uh, American Hypnosis Society uh, group is, if there's such a thing. And he would get a board certified hypnotist, and he'd pay he would pay to have uh, the hypnotist meet him at or have the uh, abductee come to come to the doctor's office and go under deep hypnosis. And he said he did that with 15 different people and said out of the 15 different people, 13 of them, and he said none of them had anything higher than uh, ambient temperature IQs. I mean, they weren't, none of them were very smart. None of them had any connection to each other. And they were, and they were scattered all over, all over the U.S., but 13 of them had, under deep, deep hypnosis and regression, they had exactly the same experiences and saw the same things. Two of them, they said, you know, they, what they said was so outrageous, he knew, he knew that there was bull. Hey, James, and, James, yes. I, sorry to interrupt you. I, I blew through the break um, where we're like a minute past where we should be doing the break. Okay. All so right. um, we'll come back to you in a minute. Uh, you're listening to the other side of midnight. We got a great thing going on with uh, uh, James Goodall, um, your host, and Ron Gerbron is here with us as well. So we'll be right back as soon as we uh, come back from this break. side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. 
Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. And we've been having this great conversation talking to Living History, James Goodall. And Ron's been uh, sharing his experiences, as well as I, uh, with uh, extraterrestrial encounters. So, James, where are we going to pick up from? Let's see. Well, we're we're talking about John uh, Lear interviewing uh, people that had been abducted. Right. And at 13 of the 15 that he had interviewed, uh, their stories were were virtually identical, or their experiences were identical. But along those lines, there was a a, a reporter from Houston didn't think it was proper for the senior chief captain at America Transair to be talking about flying saucers, and he was gonna he was gonna make a big stink about it. And he says, "Yeah, he 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 called John and and threatened him and he said." I think what you're doing is, is, is terrible. Says I, I, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to destroy you. If you keep this up, which I thought was kind of a arrogant thing to say. And so he, uh, the reporter had contacted the president of American trans air and they called John in. And this is to show you the dedication, putting your money where your mouth is, is the, the president of ATA said, John, they said, if you promise me that, you know, you won't be making any more talks about UFOs and abductions, I'll just, I'll just push this, uh, you know, slide this underneath the rug. We'll forget about it. And John says, I can't do that. And he says, well, then I'm going to have to fire you. So your decision is, and he says, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to continue to do what I do. And he said, well, you're fired. And his his then wife, Mary Lee, got so upset at him when she heard about it. She moved all his files and everything else he had. And if you've never seen John Lear's office or his study or where he kept everything, you would be absolutely blown away by what he had and the amount of stuff he had. She moved it all out and put it into a storage area, and she wouldn't tell him who where it was. And she also changed the phone numbers and forbid him from talking to anybody or giving the phone number out unless she approved. And fortunately, I was one of them that she approved of. And then over the years, you know, things just uh, got back got back to the good old days again. And uh, but he lost he lost a job paying over two hundred thousand dollars a year because he wouldn't back down on UFOs. And that tells me that that man put his money where his mouth is. And if yeah, and the one the one thing about John Lear, he may he may have came come across as a dingbat or a loose cannon, but he was one 
smart cookie, and he knew what the heck he was talking about. Well, I can yeah, there's you, almost when you when you experience a sighting or an encounter, uh, it it changes your whole perspective of who you are and where you are. And and John obviously had an encounter because he knew these things were real. I I came to the realization they were real when when I started investigating, and I woke up one night. Uh, one morning after having this wild night of a dream, thinking it was a dream, finding the deepest, neatest cut in my life uh, diagonally across the vein on my right arm. And I could open this thing up with my thumb and forefinger in my left hand and look down inside of it. No blood, no pain. It looked like I was born with a hole in my arm, but it didn't hit the vein that it was diagonally across. And I, I I had doubts until that point, but there was one incident in that encounter that, you know, I when I was conscious and aware of it, only twice in my entire life did I ever have this feeling. The first time I had the feeling, I was walking home late at night, and I'm passing this path that we used to take to go to junior high school. And I look up above the trees on the other side of the street where the path was, and there's these lights going around above the tree. They're just changing colors and stuff. And that's the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember is I'm walking down the path, headed back in the direction where I was on the opposite side of the street. And I'm coming out of a fog, and I see this little short guy walking on my right. I look to my left. There's a little short guy. And I bolt and I run down and I shimmy under this car. And then these little legs come up alongside the car and I get this feeling like somebody had anesthetized me and I'm trying to stay awake and I can't, I can't. And boom, I'm out. The next thing I wake up, I'm at home. And I'm like, how did I get home? I, was, I, I dismissed it. Had to be a dream. The next time I felt that, was I was in my bedroom living out here in Crofton and I'm sound asleep. And then suddenly I just opened my eyes and I'm looking off the side of the bed and there's these two little guys. I think I'm in my bed anyway. And I'm thinking, okay, you've been investigating this too long because I, I had been researching it. And then that night before I went to bed, I'm thinking, okay, it's time for me to get let this go. You know, I'm I'm making progress, but this can't be real. And I guess they had to show me that it was real. Tried to reach out to touch one of them, and I couldn't move. And then my right arm started to move, and the one in front took my right arm. And then I don't remember anything. I remember coming out of the dark period and the guy in front is putting my arm back under the covers. And then that feeling that I had when I was under that car, it came over me. I couldn't stay awake and boom, I'm out. Next morning I wake up and I'm going, wow, that was a weird dream. And then I said, well, what was the guy in the front doing with my arm? And I look at my arm and there's the deepest, neatest cut I ever saw. And I am like, they must, them known that I was starting to get discouraged and researching this thing. And they said, Hey, you need a booster to know that 
we are here. And they left that mark. Yes. And I showed it to my wife, and she goes, how did you do that? And when I told her the story, she didn't want to have nothing to do with it. Yeah. So yeah. those are my... Sounds like a scoop, Mark. Well, it wasn't a scoop. This was like a perfect diagonal cut. It healed up huh. like there was never a cut there at all. And I should have gone to work and said, hey, guys, look at this, and, and opened it and closed it and said, hey, look in here. How did I do it? And yeah. It's – I have no idea my, what my role is in this whole thing, but I think they put me in this role to do something. I don't know what, but we are definitely not alone, and they've got technologies that just blow everything out the water. And – I know how they were doing those stone walls back in the day. These guys had the ability to manipulate stone on a molecular level, okay? And those mm-hmm. protuberances that stick out the side, they're talking about, and some of the scientists are going, yeah, they probably used these to to, to uh, tie off ropes to help lift these things. Uh-uh. That was the excess material. They would move from one area of the stone to that section, chisel it off, pull more material over to smooth it over. And that's how they got these things to fit so tight against each other because they were pulling material from one point to the other. And I've got a picture of where they were making this like waterfall and and they made it out of a huge boulder and it's got stair-step patterns on both sides, but one side was fully extruded and down at the bottom where the protuberance was on the other side that they hadn't finished doing, it was chiseled off. And you could see where they chiseled it off. And I'm assuming they were going to pull more material to fill it in to make it smooth. And the other side had the protuberance on it. Because, you know, when they do this stuff, they make these things uh, mirror images of each other, each side, half of it. Yeah. And I said, this is how they're doing this. They still hadn't finished the one on the left side, but the right side they had finished. And the depth of the stair steps going into the the boulder, they were much deeper than the one on the side on the left, which meant that they obviously were still extruding that out of the rock by moving material. How they moved it, I have no idea. But the, the... concept where was this located uh where was it located this was in i think it was central america i've got a picture of it i I didn't um, okay could it be south america because there are all those stories that go back to the days of colonel Fawcett about a a, some sort of juice from some vine there that can soften stone and make it malleable as clay and nobody nope remember this was going on all over the all over the world they were able to do this, and whoever, if it was the Anunnaki or whoever, they had that ability. And in the Lost Book of Inky, this scribe put his experience into the into the tablets, and he said he was summoned to his lord Inky's abode. He heard the voice of his lord say, write down word for word what I say, not a word more, not a word less. And the scribe said, well, what shall I write with? And he said a glow appeared in the corner of the room. He didn't say a light came on because as far as they knew, anything lighting up the dark had to be on fire. And he said in that corner, there was an easel, none like he'd ever seen before. 
On it was a stylus, none like he'd ever seen before. Then he asked, what shall I write upon? And he said, a glow appeared in another corner of the room. And he said, in that corner were the cuneiform tablets. Now, the way these scholars think that cuneiform was done is that they had wet clay tablets, they had a stylus or reed, and they would press the cuneiform into the into the wet clay, and you'd let it dry. Well, this, this, yeah, there's nothing mysterious about that. They would uh, they would right. reuse them by smoothing them out. It was right. like they didn't have an eraser, but they could wipe it clean. That's right. it. The, the Romans even did that. Yeah, but, it was but, around for a long time. But, don't interrupt. But the well, scribe said these tablets were already dry, but when he used the stylus on them, it was like writing into wet clay. What kind of technology do we have at this point in time that can even do anything close to that? So it was extraterrestrial etch-a-sketch of some sort. Yeah, it, it, that's it, a good way of putting it. Yeah, uh, James, James, yeah. I'm sorry. What, uh, what the? I was trying to push a question before. I, I don't want to be the one that caused anything to derail. Uh, what did John Lear think about visitors from elsewhere? He didn't. He didn't give me a specific answer. I'm oh, I mean, he, he he knows they're here, and and furthermore, oh yeah, yeah no, he he, he believes that you know they're, they're they're all over the place, and a lot a lot of them look just like you and I. Uh, but he says they're uh, he feels confident they're you know, that they're everywhere, and they're they, they and what just, are they doing here? They're observing. I don't think they're. You know, John feels that you know. They're they're not into you know intervention to stop us from doing stuff, even though nuclear weapons uh, facilities have have gone on uh, uh, gone dark when craft have been over them. Uh, well, I don't know if it's up at Maelstrom or out of uh, Francis E. Warren, where uh, there was an object over the the missile you know the missile sites, and it shut down all 18 uh, sites. All eighteen silos that were in you know, they were in the uh, the complex, and those are scattered over a couple hundred square miles. I remember so, Robert Jacobs. He was um, he was one of the uh, people on Stephen Greer's coalition at the time of four hundred and fifty people who had firsthand knowledge of the government's interaction uh, with extraterrestrials, and they wanted to blow the whistle. And Jacobs said that he was telling his story when he was in the military that it was his job to go up into this mountain with this top secret lens um, and film a rocket launch that was supposed to be carrying a dummy warhead. And he said that this thing was so powerful, this lens, that they were so far away that when you look through the lens, all you could see was like a part of the gimbal on the rocket engine and they were miles and miles away from this this location then he said when by the time the rocket launch came around there was a overcast and the overcast just stretched below their level out over the area where the the rocket launch was going to take place and he said okay the rocket launch took place you see this thing come up through the clouds in the distance they can't see it because they're not looking through the lens or the, the scope. And they see it go up. 
cameras tracking it automatically. It finished. They took the film back. And then he said he was called into his commanding officer's uh, office. And he said, uh, were you guys screwing around up there? And he said, no, sir. He said, then watch this. And he played the film back that they had shot of the rocket launch. And he says, you see the rocket come up through the clouds, is leaving a contrail, is going up in this, up into the air. And he said, and this thing's moving thousands of miles an hour. And all of a sudden you see this disc-shaped craft coming and straight in and stop and start pacing with the rocket like it's nothing. He says, it's pacing it. It shoots a blue beam at the rocket. Then it zips around to another side, shoots a blue beam at it, zips around to another position, shoots a blue beam at it, and then it takes off out the frame. And he says, and the rocket tumbles out of space. And he says, so what was that? His commanding officer says, so what was that? And he says, well, it looks like you got a UFO. <laughs> and his, his commanding officer said, okay, okay. Don't talk about this. That's it. He never told him never to, never to say anything. He just said, don't talk about it. Just, you know. So when Jacobs got older, he decided he was going to blow the whistle on what he experienced. Of course, he said Phil Class had kind of tried to debunk what he was telling people. And he, and, he said Class is an ass. <laughs> And, and 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 Phil Phil would even say you know, after the fact after he destroyed somebody who actually saw a UFO he said you know sometimes it's kind of hard to do that when I know he's telling the truth mm-hmm. but it, but an incident if you recall back in the early 80s there was a craft that landed at Bentwaters in England yeah Bentwaters Wheat Ridge mm-hmm. well 1985 86 time frame I'm at Cannon Air Force Base I was there to photograph the F111s. And my escort, a public affairs kid, his staff sergeant, uh, we're, we're heading we're heading towards the flight line, and we're, I said, "Well, where'd you come before here?" I said, "Well, I was at Bentwaters." I said, "Oh, you were there when the UFO landed." He slams on the brakes, almost put me through the windshield, and then, I mean, he, this this kid was a black kid, and he turned gray. I have never seen it that much terror in anybody's eyes and he says you say one more word i will have you escorted and thrown off this base do you understand me yes sir and we didn't we didn't talk the rest of the time i was out there shooting but it it scared the bejesus out of him when i said oh you're there when the ufo landed Mm -hmm. and he he was he was not a happy camper that i that i knew that what he knew Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's out, it's out there. It's just a matter of time. And like I was you know, jokingly saying to, you know, to, uh, a friend of mine when, uh, when Tucker Carlson came out and talked about it and I e- immediately emailed my friend and she works for the NSA. And I said, Hey, do you believe in UFOs? And I got an instant response. I said, why did you see one? I said, no. I said, they're here. Hmm. <laughs> That's all she said. Uh, you, you're a photographer, right? Yes. 
Yeah, so I, I, there's an, I, I, I feel, I feel like slapping myself in the forehead. Uh, the I should have thought of this. Let's talk. And Keith made that reference to a special lens, and that triggered something. I've heard those before, those uh, tales before in other stories. Do you know anything, or did uh, John Lear know anything about something you can't call anything but a lens, but it's just kind of alien in nature? You know, like I, I, I'll give you a small example. A um, that I know. Uh, talked to someone that worked on the Reagan uh-huh. the carrier. Yep. Which at the time, and I think probably until now, has some of the most advanced equipment we have, equipment we have uh, on there. It's not necessarily the newest one that does. And uh, he mentioned that they have this lens. I said, "You mean an optical telescope, a lens thing?" And he goes, "Yeah." There's this lens, and he said, um, "He said if there was a golf ball on the moon, I could read the, uh, you know, I could read the name of the maker off of it, Titleist or whatever the other one is." And uh, he was he was quite serious, you know, and it was, but there was mm-hmm. something technological about it, and that's something I've always had in my puzzle file, and I just I just realized it's in your wheelhouse. Do you know anything about anything like that? Because that would apply to what uh, Keith was referencing too. No, no, I, I can, I, I, I can think of a way that alien tech could do it, based on, uh, but that's outside the scope of this. You know, based on some of the stuff that we've seen from Mars. But I, I believe they know a lot more about optics than we do, and uh, the properties of glass. So I just, okay, just ask. Well, they, they, I mean, just just by the fact that they, they, you know, they can go interplanetary, you know, you know anywhere in the universe in a blink of an eye tells me right away they know more than we know and you know our 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 galaxy our solar system is what four and a half billion years old well the universe itself at least the known universe is just under 14 billion years old so a lot of these a lot of these worlds that are out there of the two billion earth-like planets now in an inhabitable zone with liquid water some of them have had a eight to 10 billion year head start on our technology. So I mean, what makes you think that, you know, we, you know, we're the cat's meow here. We're not, we're, we're a second, we're a second rate uh, galaxy and an insignificant uh, part of the Milky Way in an insignificant part of the universe. So if, 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 uh, if there's, are if, you sure? Well, no, I, I mean, yeah, I am. I, I am. I'm. Con- I don't know if I'm sure, but I'm confident in that statement. If nothing else, yeah, I, I hear a lot. Well, I hear a lot of a lot of uh, claimants, you know, about that. Not you, uh, claiming that uh, you know, oh, they're so much more intelligent than we are. Not necessarily. More advanced and more intelligent are not, you know, are not the. They're not the way people depict it. You know, it's a, I think I think we may not be as much dumber as they are than than some people are claiming, or as or than some visitors are pitching, and you know, so therefore maybe well, for instance, the Ben Rich uh, item about the yep. uh, saying we could take, we had to fit, you know, we had people bright enough to figure it out. I don't believe that that was handed to us. It seems like pretty obviously it was not. You know, I think maybe they let us go ahead and poke and poke into things and see if we can figure them out 
Uh-huh. Now, there can be differences, but uh, yeah, but and and in civilization, doesn't matter how old the planet is, how many times do the civilization turn over? Yeah, and yeah. start over. So, but Ron, so they, you know, they, we are a belief-oriented yeah. society. Uh, a what? A what be- oriented? A belief-oriented society. Oh, sorry. We, we were actually molded by the Anunnaki to see them as gods. So we we saw them with technologies that our ancestors did that they couldn't understand. We're at a point where we sure. now understand the technology, even though there's still some people on this planet that got a lick of sense that have no clue about the technology. But they didn't understand it, so they saw these guys as gods. And yeah. there's film from when they had airstrips in World War II on islands where there was uh, uh, the cargo indigenous cult. people. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and tribal culture. And they're flying this plane off and the, fil- the camera's shooting out the door and there's the tribal culture all in white on the ground bowing to the plane. And as the shot is widening out, there's a stick and straw replica, a full-size stick and straw replica of the plane yeah. that these people had built. So they see these guys as gods because they can fly. They have no idea the concept of it. But now... You know what? They, they, they liked them because they dropped off food. They were using those way stations during the war to uh, resupply planes and things like that. And they, they, let, and they, took that, they took care of the locals that happened to come in the vicinity. They said, you know, we don't want them to do anything to sabotage our stuff so they they would leave them food and so forth and so that's why the people adored them and they wanted them to come back that's why they built the wicker replicas and they they developed this complex mythology there are books about it okay Ron, on the Ron, um, we're, cargo cults we're, yeah we're coming up on the break i don't want to blow through it again oh sorry so, yeah no no but uh okay sorry goodbye so uh you're listening to the other side of midnight uh getting really good um we're going to come back when we come back we're going to pick up with james again because uh john lear was uh, a ufo researcher and a really good one at the time and um we need to to honor somebody like that because like i said guys like that won't get their props until all of this has come out and and the trees have been shaken So you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Keith Morgan. C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. 
Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. And our conversation is getting really good here. Um, let me bring back my guests. So, James. Yes. Uh, is there anything you'd like to, to bring up uh, that you think is important that the audience needs to know? Yeah, there's, uh, uh, you know, Michael Schratt. Have you heard of him? Yes, I've heard that name. He is probably the, the best researcher of historical UFO encounters uh, to the point where uh, he has a book that came out. It's available on uh, 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 in, in Amazon. And he has in the neighborhood of probably 10,000 uh, reports where he's gone, he's gone through uh, with supporting documents, with you know, with illustrations written, you know, d- drawn by the you know by the eyewitnesses, police reports, FAA reports, military reports, and he does he does a and it's not taking anything away from what Richard does or what you do, but he have a, he has a, a a YouTube channel called Blue Room Media. That if you want to if you want to see some uh, some incredible stuff and it and it this has evidence and it has all the supporting documents are part of his presentation and he you know, he's done a couple dozen of them now and they've been really really well received so it may be worth worthwhile for you know, for you or Richard or or whomever to go uh, take a look at it and the other thing is you know I mentioned that I'm a writer and you don't make any money writing. 
if you broke down what I make per hour for everything, for the 450,000 books with my name on it that have been sold in the last 40 years, I probably make maybe one, two cents an hour, not counting expenses, <laughs> cameras, travel, you know, travel time, uh, computers, uh, dinners, lodging, everything else. So it's, it's not something where you go and you make any money at it. But if you're interested, if you like, uh, if you're into airplanes or if you're into stealth and you like machines, I might, you know, you can go to Amazon, books by James C. Goodall. You'll see a bunch of my you know, books in there. I have 75 years of Lockheed Skunk Works, uh, which came out last year. It's in its third printing. I'm very, very proud of it. It's 384 pages uh, in the neighborhood of about 1,100 photos, of which over half of them have never been in print. My B-2 book is there. Uh, I flew the B-2 sim. They, they wouldn't let me drop a nuke, but they dropped one on me when I was doing my first touch and go at Whiteman. And... And I'm also into, you know, submarines. And someone said, well, how the heck can you be in submarines? I said, they're black, they're stealth, and they're deadly. So it meets all the qualifications. And I have, I have been at 400 feet deep in a ballistic missile submarine. Uh, I've been up in the sail going through the Straits of Juan de Fuca, just like uh, uh, Denzel Washington. And, uh, oh, my God, my brain just went blank. And uh, and it's just it's something I love to do, and it's a passion. And I and I'm delighted to, you know to have you know to be uh, invited to be on uh, on this show on this program. I have a uh, I'm blessed with a really really good memory, but I'm but I'm also losing my voice tonight. I think you can tell it's starting to change quite a bit. So I don't know how much longer I have until I lose it completely. But it's been an absolute delight, and I'm. Uh, I hope I hope the, the fires in New Mexico uh, are taken care of, so you know Richard will have his voice back. I know what it's like to lose it, <clears throat> and it's has been. It's just, and I've thoroughly enjoyed one meeting you, Keith, online, and you know we've had have I, but three or four good conversations that have lasted for hours on end, you know, Keith and I, and we could probably go for tens of hours on end without running, without duplicating what we, we said earlier. So uh, I'm, I'm honored and I'm delighted and I, and I want to thank you and I want to thank Richard for inviting me to the other side of midnight. It's been, it's just been a, a lot of fun. And I love, I love sharing what I have and I, and people say, well, what do you keep to yourself? I don't keep anything to myself. If there's something out there that it's exciting, if there's something out there that, that I've heard about that no, maybe no one else has, I'm not going to keep it to myself because if I drop over dead five minutes from now, what I was keeping to myself is going to go leave with me if, I, you know, if something happened to me. So, no, I don't, I don't hold back anything. I, uh, most, most of my experiences, the early experiences I did long before the internet where you had to do things in person, the the internet has made some people really lazy. There's a number of people in this, you know, in this community, uh, 
that uh, the only reason they're there that they have, they, they've done good research online, but they haven't left their mother's basement. Uh, I don't have a basement, so I can't leave it, but I, there, there's some really talented people out there. Richard is one of them. Michael Schratt is on the top of the list. I have, I, I can't say enough incredible things about, about the young man. He's almost like my kid. And I talk to him at least two or three times a week. Sometimes I talk to him every day, but it, uh, How do you spell his last name? S C H R A T T. Michael. Yeah, I just I just tried to look him up, and there's a couple of commercial names in the way. So. Yeah, yeah. No, he's Thanks. Uh, Thanks. he's uh, he's been in a lot of programs. Uh, he he gives some of the best presentations. Now I've known Michael for about over 20 plus years. And it wasn't until the only MUFON function in 2020, which was in San Francisco in Mar- early March, where I actually heard him talk about his favorite subject, UFOs, in person. And I was, I, I was so incredibly impressed with him. And I pulled him aside and I said, Michael, you have to come out with some books. And he did one. And he says, you know, he has, it's called Dark Files. Again, it's, it's available on, on uh uh, Amazon, and he's and they're they're fully illustrated. They cover I think sixty some odd programs, and he can do two or three hundred of these books if uh, if he decided to take his, the cream of his crop of the stuff that he's investigated over the years. And and this is not a this is not a casual uh, endeavor. I mean he he put like John Lear, he puts his man, money where his mouth is. He spends his money to travel all over the planet to interview people, to talk with people. Uh, he pays artists to take the renderings that are done by, by eyewitnesses and actually creates a realistic looking, uh, uh, drawing usually in full color that will show what it, you know, what, what the event was. And these are events that are well-documented. And, and again, he has all the supporting documents. So he's, he keeps saying, well, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only doing what you did. I said, no, he's doing way beyond what I ever thought I would be doing because he, he digs into the meat of it. He digs into, into the unknowns. I myself, I'm a, uh, like I say, I'm a historian, but I'm a hardware guy. I'm, you know, I, I'm a, I like machines and that's what fascinates me about this whole subject. And it's, you know, if you're, if you're interested in, in, in machines, you're going to be interested in UFOs. You're going to be re, you know, interested in airplanes and trains and planes. Did you, did you know Mark McCandless? Yes, I did. And it just breaks my heart that he ended the way he ended. Uh, every time I would go up to Seattle, which was like twice a year, I'd drive up there. I always stop in Reading. I, I'd always either meet him for lunch or meet him for dinner. And when I when I heard that he had uh, he had, he had left us, I was heartbroken because he was an incredible artist. And he had. He had I believe stuff. he invented that blown away style, didn't he? I don't think anybody had ever done anything like that to that. No, level. he was he was he was. Uh, he was an incredible artist, and, but he had he had a lot of demons, and I think that's what got the best of him. And I don't know I don't know what caused it, 
I never, I never sat down and said, okay, you know, why, why are you troubled? Why are, you know, why are you having problems? Why, you know, why are you become a recluse? I just never did that. I just, I, I enjoyed his friendship and I enjoyed his company. And I, and I, I was, I was sad that he passed. And James, I, really James, uh, I want to see if there's anybody out there listening that would like to ask you questions. So sure. if you'd like to call in and speak with our guest, uh, the number is 917-889-8802. It's uh, 917-889-8802. And just call in, and I'll see you show up, and then um, I'll uh, get your name and everything when you call in. But uh, in the meantime, Jim, um, yeah, you know, it's been a pleasure pleasure talking to you and hearing your history. And I know you got still a lot of stuff up there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, I think you're you're a witness to that in our, in our conversations we've had in the past. So. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's and, a lot in there, and the generation coming up, um, they really need to listen to us old guys uh, <laughs> and the things that we have experienced, because uh, it's too easy for the guys who are manipulating everything to put out false information for the younger generation to uh, latch onto, and then they'll drag that around until they realize, oh. I'm too old. I made a mistake. I went the wrong direction. And if they would talk to the older generations and catch up, uh, they can pick up from where they left off, where the older generation left off, and they won't have to do all the footwork that has already been done all over again to find out what was really going on. Uh, I think that we're into a major change coming i think we're gonna we're gonna make first contact uh it may be this the end of this year it may be next year but i'm thinking it's coming quick Uh, i get i get i get the same feeling i can't tell you why i feel that just you know there's there's a lot of things that are that are sort of rumbling in 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 the distance Mm-hmm. That just tells me that we're getting close. And what, there was a what an Israeli scientist uh, in the last couple of years saying that uh, you know, he has evidence that you know that they're here, whoever they are, and that we're not ready for disclosure yet. And I know Dr. Richard uh, Greer is is working on getting stuff released. There's uh, a number. There's a number of individuals and, and groups that are that are trying to put the fear into the general public, saying that, well, these, you know, these aliens are, you know, they're they're evil. They're, you know, they're they're going to, you know, they can uh, you know, do us harm. Well, if they have the ability to go across the universe in a blink of an eye, there isn't anything that we have is going to stop them. So if they wanted to take over the earth, they wanted to wipe out mankind. They have that. They've had that capability since uh, the Earth was formed. So I'm not worried about it. I'm uh, I'm not fearful of of an alien landing. But one one of the things, and and, and John Lear brought this up, and uh, and all the people he's interviewed over the, over the decades, 
is that there's a big fear among certain people that the revelation that we have been visited since time began by creatures from a, from a, another entity, another universe, another uh, world, will that blow the lid off of uh, a strong religious belief? If all of a sudden, the, uh, in the first world, you and I can, can uh, accept an alien landing and an alien being coming out of a craft of some sort. Because a good part of this world can't, and they're, they're a firm believer in a supreme being, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Mohammed, whether it's you know, Adam Smith, whether it's the, you know, the 7-Eleven down in the corner. If all of a sudden your belief in God, your belief in, in Jesus Christ, or your belief in, in Mohammed or Buddha or any one of the thousands of religious sects that are out there, if all of a sudden your belief is blown away because you've just been told that that person or that entity that you have been sacrificing your goats to or whatever, or throwing your kids into volcanoes, they are from outer space. They are little gray men from Mars or little green men from Mars. You're going to, you're going to blow their belief system right out the window. And that is the glue that keeps the majority of the world in line. If, the only, there's, there are people out there, if, it was, if, if there was no threat of you going to hell, if you killed someone, because you know the Ten Commandments say thou should not kill, if, if all of a sudden that belief system dissolves and, there's, and, there, and this glue that has held civilization together has come undone, we're gonna, we're gonna, we could see an end to mankind. I mean, it's, it's getting pretty crazy right now in, in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, but there's, there's a, I think there, that's where one of the major fears is. But the Israeli scientists said, we're not ready. They, they say we're not ready. Well, uh, that, the thing is, is that um, these religions have put the Almighty into a box and and doesn't give him the credit that, hey, he couldn't have done this elsewhere since this is his universe and he could have put life any place at once on any planet in this whole entire region. We're out on the edge of a spiral galaxy. We're not down in the middle where there's a lot of congestion with planets and stars and, and things going on. We're out on the edge. We're like in the super suburbs and so we we don't get to experience a lot of the stuff that's probably going on in the denser part of the in the galaxy where the stars are closer together and uh there's civilizations going on that are way advanced more advanced than we are so i'm just saying we we need to grow up we we've been burning people at the stake for voicing their opinions and and putting forth uh, their concepts of what they think the universe and the earth is flat or round or green or yellow or whatever. Yeah. And and that has to stop. We have to all come together and say, hey, there's something greater than ourselves, and it's not just the Almighty 
others out there, whether they look like us, whether they think like us, whether they react like us, they have figured it out. How did they figure it out? They probably had more of an open mind and less of a belief system. Our belief system was pushed upon us by the Anunnaki who created temples for us to go to to worship them as gods. I mean, that right there is, you know, it's that's focused. In other words, they were petty, self-absorbed and capricious. Yeah. Why is that a goal that we should, that we should seem to seek to emulate? And whereas you take individual religious leaders like the Buddha or something who was patently told everybody he was not a God, kept pointing Mm -hmm. that out. Mm -hmm. And, um, they're more centered. You know, it seems like we, that's why I keep saying, I don't know that they're, better than us they were just stronger than us you know you can get people to follow you because you got the cool toys but uh that doesn't mean that their philosophies are any better than ours are maybe that's why we scare them i'm just taking the human side of the argument well we still have a lot of people who have not evolved on this planet because one they either haven't learned they haven't been taught and they're doing stupid things and shooting people for no reason, hijacking, carjacking, uh, things that, you know, you go, why? Why would you do that? But if, if we could remember our past lives, if we are reincarnating, which I'm pretty sure we do, we just move on to the next physical. I've been here before. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've been here ah, before. New Avenue. What did John Lear think about that? Did he believe in uh, reincarnation or yeah. Oh, yeah. physical vessels for astral beings? Or where was he aligned in that sort of thing? No, he, he believed in reincarnation. Uh, no, he, you know, he believed in, in just energy and entities you know, with, no, with no physical body, but a physical presence. Those are the Ascended. advanced. The advanced ones. Yeah. 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 And uh, I don't know. It's, I can accept almost anything. If you, if you put it in front of me, if, if a UFO were landing in my backyard, I'd probably mess my pants initially, but maybe not. I may go in there with my hand out to, uh, to shake your hand and welcome to earth. I don't know. I know I have, I can remember standing out by the black mailbox in Tippecoo Valley, which is, Right uh, due east of Area 51, mm-hmm. the sun was go- the sun was going down. It was a, just a sliver of a moon, and it was so dark I couldn't see my feet for the first 45 minutes. The sun went down, and I'm sitting there. I said, "Okay, they say that you can read minds, and you could, you know, you can uh, you can interpret energy, you can ter- interpret thoughts." So I'm 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 standing out by the black mailbox on uh, the extraterrestrial highway, out you know on my way to Rachel. And I'm thinking to myself, if you can if you can read my mind, abduct me, but may I bring my camera with me, <laughs> so I can document this, and and I'm one of the very few people who who's huh? been out in the desert. I mean I've been out the fence line at Tonopah in area 51, 80 some odd times. And uh, I have yet, I have yet to see something I can't explain. 
and that and that one it it I'm jealous. I'm irritated. Okay, it's my turn. I want to see something. I mean, I'm when I go outside living here in Tucson, you know, uh, the area I live, I live in Oro Valley. There's no street lights. So so when this when it gets dark at night, you, you can see the Milky Way in town. You can look up and see the Milky Way in my neighborhood. And you wow. can't almost, I remember that from childhood. Me too. Me too. I can remember I took my son. He was 15 years old. We're camping along the north fence line area 51. We're there for six days. Didn't say anything that I couldn't explain. But we're the, the first day we were there. A beautiful day. I mean, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And now it's about nine o'clock at night, and the sun's gone. I mean, it's pitch black out there. And he said, Dad, I, said, I got a question. I said, what's that? He said, well, there was no clouds out this, you know, today when the sun went down, yet there's this big, huge cloud that's going across the whole, the whole sky. And I said, James, that's the Milky Way. <laughs> and he hadn't seen it before. <laughs> and it's just... I was going <clears> to... <throat> oh, I'm sorry. I should have coughed. That's, and it's mind it's mind boggling that my kid. I mean, and he has the same inquisitive mind that I do, but he just he doesn't have the obsession that I've had trying to dig stuff up on Area 51 and things that go bump in the night. He was amazed, and he could, at 15 years old, his eyes were good enough that he could read a book by starlight. Huh. That's what was amazing. That's how bright the Milky Way was. Well, now all of the all of the people, kids growing up in cities, they've got so much light pollution. They look up, they see maybe one or two stars, and they're like, "Oh yeah." They they don't have the kind of view that you have when you don't have the light pollution, and wonder those are all stars out there. What are the odds? Yeah, I, I really think that I really think we suffer for not having those clear skies, and that's not a that's not a Greenpeace kind of uh, statement. I just remember from being a little kid in rural oh, yeah. Pennsylvania and being able to see the uh, Milky Way, even on a night like this. And the only other time I've seen it was you were talking about Kitt Peak. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I have never, unfortunately, toured all the observatories, but I did make it up to where the large array is and on the um, uh, tip of the Andes. And okay. the air up there is amazing. Oh my God! There, sometime in twenty, into twenty-two or twenty-three, the giant Magellan Telescope will have first light. They're they're utilizing seven twenty-seven foot diameter mirrors, all focused to one uh, secondary mirror, and they figure they can look. They're going to be able to look within a hundred thousand years of first light. And they'll probably see a McDonald's sign. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a good guess. Yeah, nobody would nobody would believe this until they see it. But if you go up there to well, there's a ski resort uh, called Portillo that uh, you can go. Uh, if nothing else, uh, up on the top of the Andes, the air is so clear and still that you can see the colors of the stars. And I, yep. Yeah. Okay, guys. We're like thirty yeah, seconds out from the bottom of the hour break here. And, and I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to have to go. 
I've, I say I am, I am forcing myself to talk. Okay. And I've, uh, Ron and I got it from here. So when we come back from break, uh, James is going to be gone and Ron and I will carry it out from here. If you want to call in and voice an opinion, uh, 917-889-8802. So you're listening to the other side of midnight and we'll be right back after this break. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 an episode, $0.02.5 per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. Our guest for the night uh, is James Goodall. Uh, he gave us some very interesting historical events uh, in his life. And 
painted a picture of uh, kind of stuff that was going on behind the scenes that we weren't privy to and how they don't want us to know and didn't want us to know. But now I think things are changing. I think we're going to eventually find out exactly what's going on. Um, but I have still have Ron, and we're going to carry the show on from here. Um, I haven't got any callers yet, but Ron and I are going to have a really good uh, conversation about stuff. Okay, Ron. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. We're, so yeah. Okay. Yeah. Push. There's a button to push, I think. The button? Uh, oh, no, you can't hear me. Okay. I can hear you. No, I was going to... Going to say, yeah, I did. He attend the uh, John Lear's because um, I know he mentioned that uh, yeah, he did. Derek Knapp wasn't there, which is as far as yeah, I was. I was hoping. I was hoping for more gossip about that out of him. You know, maybe it was more um, sed- more sedate than that. But, uh, he's uh, boy. He's he's seen and done a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, There's an awful lot of animals to run down there. Yeah, and like I said, there's it, there's a lot of people out there who have stories to tell, but they haven't been able to tell them because they've been either hushed up, embarrassed, or or something's keeping them from actually telling their side of the story about what's going on. I want to you know, hear. They could be immobilized, like like Lear. I didn't realize that he was uh, that he had smashed up his feet. I never heard that before. Yeah, yeah, but that explains it. He still made a contribution. No, go ahead. Oh yeah, no, no, I'm just I'm just musing here. You know, we're, we got there's tons of data to analyze. <laughs> the uh, oh, just quickly, if nobody, if anybody out there didn't know who Mark McCandlish is, if you. I was a I was a devotee of his before I knew anything, just even uh, copies of Popular Science in the early '60s, where they had those draw those incredibly intricate industrial drawings showing a 3D view of an engine, you know, where you're kind of seeing through it like Superman. He's the one that did those, and it's 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 an astonishing feat, and I, I he sort of invented that. That's who Mark McCandless was. He was another one of these lost voices that died in his case rather mysteriously i think fairly fairly recently mm-hmm. so that was yeah housekeeping that's all sorry <laughs> just like a just like i said too much about the cargo belts but there really are books about that and it's really i was amazed what they did because uh, i thought it was straightforward you know but they weren't just they weren't just fetish worshippers, they developed whole mythological cults based on that, which had nothing to do with those airmen that had left supplies behind for the local people stuck living on an island. So you never know. Maybe yeah. that happened to us. Yeah. Oh, this, yeah. Um, I was talking I know you got about... a thread to work on because you were talking to him a couple hours before the show. Yeah. So. Uh, I was I was talking about the Anunnaki the other night when we were doing the show, and uh, I was gonna I was gonna hit the uh, the takeover button, the spelled with M U T E, you know, because I was getting stepped on by everybody, and all I wanted to do was 
try to make a point. And so since we've got time, I'm going to try to get that point across. Um, there's a difference between interpretation and a, a difference between translation. If you're translating something, you're converting something from one language into another. And there could be something lost in the translation, but when you read what you've translated, it's how you interpret that is totally different, could go any direction depending on how you read stuff out of it. And the thing is, is that the the stuff in the lost book Inky it was just the translation. It wasn't Zacharias Ditchin's interpretations. It was just his translations. In his book, series of books, it was a lot of his interpretation. And he missed a lot of stuff. I'll ask I'll ask people, did you read the Lost Book of Inky? Yeah, oh, yes, I read it. Okay, so then you can tell me what the Mark of Cain is. I didn't read anything about the Mark of Cain in the Lost Book of Inky. It, it was there. Okay, strike one. All right, so answer the question that every Sunday school kid asks, and they never get an answer. Where did Cain and Abel get wives from? Uh, they can't tell me because they. I, I could answer that. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's all a matter of being if your if your viewpoint is too narrow, uh, you can't solve. And I don't mean you personally, Keith. Not uh, I'm the generic you. If there is still such a thing, uh, is uh, if your viewpoint is too narrow, then there are many things that can't be answered. That's why mm-hmm. parallel comparisons are so valuable. Now, okay. let me. I okay. I have I have one thing. This I realized I should have pointed this out before because this most people don't understand this, and it would have been um, uh, understand that this is the way things were. What we think of as his histories that is written with some intent toward accuracy and focus and and rich with verifiable information is a surprisingly recent invention. For instance, in the time of the Egyptians, all the way up through the Ptolemies, not just the ancient, ancient, ancient stuff, which may be otherwise, maybe more accurate, uh, it was always a narrative. It was a story. It was made up in the, fa- in the fashion of fake lore or folklore, virgin on fake lore, to display a um, particular picture. And that was the way they wrote it. It wasn't important about the chronology and the timing of things. It wasn't in, in the way that we think of it in modern times. It wasn't important to get all the names in accurate roles. Uh, thus, you, you might conflate two historical figures together into one person like a screenwriter might do. That is the way history was recorded, and it's the only history that we have from times like ancient Babylon. It was not written with the same rules of accuracy that we use. It was accurate enough for them because of the way they perceived it. But that's the problem with those ancient, uh, those ancient scriptures. They're not the same. They're not historical documents in that sense. The reason that the Bible of all of them has had so much staying power is that large parts of it, being as it was written in much more modern times, uh, are structured in a more modern fashion that we can follow. 
And the Egyptian part, that's why I cite that for comparison. It's easy for anybody to look up if they want to. They can find that out. It was not written as accurate chronological data. And neither was the stuff that was recorded on the cuneiform tablets in Babylon, Assyria, um, by the Hittites, uh, by the Scythians, any of that stuff. It was uh, so. Therefore, it has to be taken with a, forgive me, grain of salt. That's all. It's not that because Sitchin was probably the best translator he, that well, ever he, lived. He wasn't alone. His stuff. his professor helped him. Uh, they both worked together to translate these tablets. So, right. he, but Stitchin, when I read his stuff, I could see what he was doing. He was trying to shoehorn the Lost Book of Inky into the Bible when the Bible easily slips into the Lost Book of Inky. All right. It, and a lot of the, a lot of Seems the things, yeah. a lot of the things that yeah. were in, that were in the Lost Book of Inky. I could not understand why people could not see what was going on. And I asked, I gave him two strikes there. And the third thing I said, okay, what was the tower of Babel based on what Inky told us? He didn't say anything about the tower of Babel. Yes, he did. He tells a story. He didn't give it by name. A lot of this, if you knew what was going on and you knew the Bible, you knew the Quran, you knew most of these things from different religions, you would see the big picture all coming together. And you would know when he told the story exactly what he was referring to without him saying, yeah, I'm talking about the Tower of Babel. I'm talking about the Cain and Abel. I'm talking about, I'm, he's, he's telling us exactly the story so that we could see what was unfolding. That's why I like Jonathan Womack's writing, because when he writes, there's enough detail that you can see the whole thing unfold. I said I could write the screenplay for this for the movie, because I could see the whole thing unfolding in my mind as as I'm reading his words. Inky did the same thing. Everything unfolded. It just it showed itself. Uh, I and. I, I'm dumbfounded when all the people that I asked questions of said they read the book, but they didn't. They didn't get it. It's like when the people went into the into Utah in this the area where the monolith was. They went in. They looked at the monolith. They saw it. They looked. They didn't see everything else around it. All they saw was that. And the same thing is happening with the Lost Book of Inky. People read. Yeah, it. you're kind of making the same. Yeah. I was going to say something back there. The, uh, Indi- the Indians. Um, forgive me out there if people have to hear Native Americans, but of course they were natives. They just uh, point is they were here for tens of thousands of years, and most people, and I mean we're up in the high 90s and uh, percent wise, uh, think of the Native American populations uh, a as one big diffuse group, and they really there were several different. Uh, collections and there were different eras and different layers and everything else, but they go back a lot farther than people give it credit for. And so therefore they're not, uh, most people are not aware that there was anybody that was carving things on stone surfaces 
uh, you know, five, six, seven thousand years ago. Uh, they um, they just uh, in the last week or two, they, there was an announcement that they found this bunch of new cave uh, art in Alabama, of all places. And that's I think like they're dating it at like eleven thousand years, which is that's kind of like the standard timeline. That's as far back as you go before you start getting into issues with the last ice age and so forth. But most people don't think of that. They think, okay, before the Spaniards got here, they weren't doing much. You know, the people that were here already, and that's just not true. But that's why they miss it, Keith. It's not that you know you're absolutely right. It's not that they're not. they're not capable. It's not that they're not capable of picking up on those details. They just don't realize that's an available context. If you see something that's a million years old, most people don't think that it was manufactured. You know, that's a, even before they, their eyes have fully resolved the image. If the idea is that they're looking at something that's a half a million years old even, then, okay, it wasn't, uh, you know, that can't be artificial. Uh, that's it's it's a everybody pre-filters things a little you know and uh, they see pictures of elephants and they or things like that and they don't realize that um, what that's the some of the father crespi stuff from south america the drawings and etchings of elephants uh the the mammoths were still running around in the americas until less than eight thousand years ago mm. Damn. You know, we have city, we have ruins of cities left over all over the place that are older than that, that nobody disputes. And I met the mammoths were still around in the Americas. Uh, and there were people that were sophisticated enough to do something with that information and draw a picture of them. So that, so therefore to pre-filter that out is wrong. So by that logic, pre-filtering out something that looks kind of like a flying saucer, that may be wrong as well, because there were people around at that point in time that were sophisticated enough to deal with it. So it's, you know, there was nothing dumb about the uh, uh, people that wrote the accounts that Sitchin was translating. It was just done to a different standard of uh, recording we're used to, and you have to, you have to accommodate that. That's why uh, the, um, when they do try to reconstruct his histories, just the simple physical material histories of the uh, Middle East and so forth, the best resources are always the accounts that are written by the country's enemies. You know, the best accounts about Egypt come from accounts, whether it be their trade documents or records of war, those are much more accurate when they're talking about the guys they're fighting or trading with than when they're talking about themselves. It's just that's part of human nature, I guess. You know, everybody likes to make themselves look good. So it's, yeah, you have to factor that in. And sometimes we just don't have the other information. Yeah. You know, of course, a mechanical object is not going to mean anything to somebody before the Middle Ages. I just feel that there's, um, that the tablets were probably read by the Mesopotamians. And from there, they derived the Bible or whatever, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and then the Bible or whatever from that. But yeah. they didn't understand the sure. technology that was being described in the lost book because they couldn't look at it from that kind of standpoint. So things that they didn't understand, mm-hmm. they could, they only could 
they could only interpret it from what they did know. You know the whole thing with the Adam's rib uh, and and um, Eve being created from Adam's rib. And, and I'm listening to how Inky said that Adamu was created and then they took his life essence. They made seven more him, but their females had to carry the egg because every time they put the egg back in the primitive hominid, when the child was born, it was hairy and he couldn't understand. So his sister carried the first work, the first egg. What did you say, Harry? Did you say Harry? Yeah, they were they were hairy and it couldn't understand. Oh. I'm thinking that's where Bigfoot huh. like comes e- in. Like Esau. You think that's it? You think that relates to Esau? Esau. You know, Abraham, Esau, the many colored coat, all that stuff. Uh for there's a line in there for for Esau was an hairy man. Mm. Okay. Now I've known lots of I've known lots of Persians that had more uh fur on their backs than most people do on their floor rugs, but it's that's just you know, that's just a local variation. I think they were talking about something beyond that. Well I I think that's <laughs> what, that may be where Bigfoot comes in because he didn't Inky doesn't say that you know they they took the child and did anything, you know, like killed it or something like that. They probably gave it back exactly. to the to the the female mother and said, Okay uh, and then they took another egg and they manipulated the DNA and they tried it again. But then Inky said, we're going to have to have our, one of our females carry this worker, which was his sister who was the geneticist doing the manipulation of the DNA. And when the child was born, Harry was he not. His hair was black and his skin was the color of dark blood. That is the play of the Abzu. And the Abzu was... That sure sounds accurate. Does... Yeah. yeah, that sure... And that that but, matches uh, that matches up with current archaeology. And then you know, they did a pretty good. Go ahead. Then they yeah. took his he took his life essence. They made seven more, but their females had to carry that worker. And then Inky said, "We cannot have our females carrying these workers." So what they did was they right. took Adamu's uh, life essence. They altered it to make a female, and Inky's wife carried the first female. And when she was born, he said, "Their her skin was more like theirs." And his wife named her Tiamat after the planet that this planet formed from, which was sitting between Mars and Jupiter. And then they took her life essence, made seven more her. So now Isn't they, that strange? That's kinda of like you naming your that's kinda of like one of us naming a kid uh Adam Bomb or or Bubonic or yeah. something. Well you know, they, they, these these are names. So they they took yes. the the first two they put them aside. They let the other, the other fourteen or seven, Adamu and seven Tiamats, go out and do what they're supposed to do to procreate. They were doing what they were supposed to do, except nothing was happening. They looked, took a look at the life essence, the DNA, and realized there was a flaw. Then one of Inky's sons came up with this idea. He took bone marrow from Inky's rib and put it in the Adamu's ribs. They took bone marrow. Where do you think it's bone marrow out of the cuneiform? Uh, see, that, that, that's, that's one of those anchor points where it gets a little hard to swallow. Yeah. So, see, that's not in there. That's this, is, this is an interpret, yeah. okay, because he, yeah. he did remove material from, the, from Inky's rib, and that's obviously the bone marrow because this is a bone marrow transplant, transplant to be able to well, give them this ability to procreate. He did the same with or stem cells. Yeah, they he, 
I don't know why bone marrow would help. Well, it, they they did a transfer which came from the ribs of Inky and Inky's sister. And Inky's uh, sister's uh, bone marrow transplant went into the Tiamats. Then they were able to procreate, okay? And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's how they got started. But they were looked at as being uncivilized humans. So after thousands of years had passed, Inky started to notice that the humans were starting to digress back to being more primitive. So he decides to go out and infuse new DNA the old-fashioned way, and he goes out in his whirlwind with his savant. They land at a lake. There's two female humans there, and he says, quote, they made his phallus water. The first one comes up to him, presents him with an apple, and he pours the semen into her womb. The second one comes up, and he does the same thing with her. She presents him with something else. I forgot what it was. And he told the savant, stay with them until they give birth, bring the children to me and my wife, say you found them, and we will raise them as our own. And that's exactly what he did. And one was a boy, and the other one was a girl. And they named the boy Adapu, and they named the girl Titi. When they came of age, they procreated, and they had Cain and Abel. Adapu and Titi were raised under Anunnaki ways. So they were considered civilized. So Cain and Abel were the children of the first civilized humans. So where did Cain and Abel get wives from? Obviously, from the first group of humans. Because if Cain and Abel went over the mountain and knew their wives, according to the Bible... How could there be wives on the other side of the mountain unless there was another group of humans? So, Actually, this is awfully dry, but I have an explanation for you okay. based on the, uh, the um, yeah, this, and some of this comes out of me speaking of interpretations. But if you're working on a genetics process and that's going to take millennia, which is what was, uh, what was going on, whoever you ascribe it to, then you're going to have separate test groups. You're going to have different <clears throat> refugia, they were, uh, one would call them, where you've got different colonies, if you will. And they're going to be kept isolated so that modifications can be tested on one or another, but they largely are not going to be intermingling. So they're, not, they're hardly going to know of each other. Okay. There could be some, but it would all be controlled. You, so you follow me? It's a laboratory control thing. Same thing Same thing as if they were rats in cages in a big room. And uh, so when everything fell apart at Party Central and uh, off they went looking at, you know, Cain and Abel went, or Cain anyway, went off looking for a wife, he simply came to one of those other enclaves. And it doesn't really mean that those people over there were any inferior, any particularly inferior. They were just a different test lot, you know, because we were basically mules. The genetic experimentation produced sterile brain, and that's what they were trying to conquer. And it's clear in the text that Sitchin worked with. It's clear in other texts that they were uh, this was the kind of problem they had. You know, if you if you um, crossbreed a, um, a donkey and a horse, you get mules, and 
they're big and strong and all that stuff, but they're sterile. Well, you know, they can't these guys, they, they understood DNA or life essence, whatever they yeah. want to call it, to the point where yeah. they could take Cain and alter his life essence so his people could never grow beards. And that's the mark of Cain. Okay, Inky doesn't say, oh, yeah, this, oh. this is the mark of Cain. But when he tells the story, you can say, oh, they altered Cain's DNA so his people could never grow beards so they could recognize his people. That's the mark so of Cain. So the Oriental people were the mark of Cain? That seems a little harsh. A, yeah. Well, they banished him to the other side of the planet. Okay. And there's some hmm. Native Americans and there's some Hawaiians that also can't grow beards. And I had Absolutely. a lady say to me, well, maybe it's a genetic defect for a whole race of people. I don't think so. It's, it's, no, it's a different test lot, like, just like I just said. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, we're coming down to like the last 30 seconds here for, before we end the show. So thank you, Ron. Uh, thank you, James. Thank you, Kit. Thank you, Keith. Tried to stay out of the way uh, as much as I could, but you know how I am. Uh, you did, yeah, you did great. And boy, I love Goodall. I, uh, these, uh, what a good guest. Oh yeah. Well, like I said, when we were talking, we had a great conversation for, for hours, just, and I told him, don't, don't think of what we talked about on the show. Cause you're talking to a new group of people start from scratch. I want you to tell them everything that you know, and it's that time You've been listening to The Other Side of Midnight. As Richard would say, star on the left, straight on to morning.